Good day. It is the third installment of the Joey Vendetta Show with yours truly. By the way, if you don't follow OJ Simpson on Twitter, he always introduces himself as yours truly, and people have taken to calling him George Truly. It's hysterical. Anyway, it's excellent to have you here again for the third installment of the Joey Vendetta Show. And, of course, we're on Sportsnet 960 in Calgary, Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver, and Sportsnet 590, the fan, in Toronto. And during these times, I'd like to share some positivity and some messages of of hope as we sit here and wonder why why are we here what does it all mean where do we go from here why am i wearing track pants to bed why does the fridge follow me around even to the garage why does hair dye stain tiles forever I don't know any of these answers, but I guarantee you for the next little bit, you're going to hear some stories, some conversation, and we'll touch upon some topics that will interest you, and hopefully you will participate. And how can you do that? You can call in, one 590 star 590 on your Rogers cell phone. Or you can text us at 590-590. And on the program today, in the next three hours, we will talk to National Hockey League and professional hockey agent Alan Walsh, who I'm sure will have many opinions to share specifically on if and when the NHL resumes, what will it look like, what will escrow look like next year, what will the salary cap look like next year. Also, one of my favorite guests... Always a pleasure to have him on because he's so interesting and he's so controversial. And he's one of those guys who speaks his piece, which I have an incredible amount of respect for. And he drives people nuts. Sean Avery will join us in hour number three. Julie Stewart Banks, longtime broadcaster, radio personality, multimedia personality. She's in New York, she's Canadian. I want to get her perspective on being in the epicenter of what's going on and see what she's been up to. Matt Devlin will join us this hour and actually next hour. And this hour will be joined by Troy McCann from the Wasserman Agency. They've written this pretty interesting piece on how important hockey is to us as Canadians. And I have to point out a couple of things that, are really important here. We know how important hockey has been, but the question is, how important is it now to you and going forward? So we'll touch upon that in the next segment. And I want to get your texts at 590-590. And this week, Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger, both of whom participated in the charity benefit events that have gone on where musicians are performing remotely to raise money and and everyone has done an incredible job. That's the great thing about going through something awful is it brings out the best in so many people, their positivity. 
And it led me to think about this question, and it's a pretty simple question. Who's better, the Beatles or the Stones? Because McCartney kind of started it, and he said that the Beatles were better than the Stones. And then Mick responded and said, yeah, except for the fact that we're still touring stadiums and we're well into our 70s and your band stopped existing in 1969 for all intents and purposes. So who's better, the Beatles or the Stones? Text us at 590-590. My Twitter handle, at Radio Vendetta. On Instagram, it's Joey Vendetta. And it will be a pleasure to welcome our next guest, a man who I've known for a very long time, and I consider him a very close friend. And as we're talking about positivity and talking about setting an example during this time where people are really questioning a lot of things, it's my pleasure to welcome Ty Domi, legendary Toronto Maple Leaf and National Hockey League player, and even more of a legendary friend to me. Ty, thanks a lot for doing this, man. How are you today? Oh, my pleasure, Joey. Good. Uh, nice to uh, nice to be speaking with you. Yeah, it's great. it's good to have you. So, so first off, where are you holding holding down and hunkering down there during this coronavirus? I've been seeing it on Instagram, and you're well, great because you're so positive, right? And and so, where well, are you? Well, first of all, I I just want to say my deepest condolences to all the people in Nova Scotia who lost all their loved ones. You know, our, our thoughts and prayers are with all you and. That's tough uh, one to take on our country, but you know, and obviously, I want to, you know, to all the families who lost uh, their loved ones in this deadly virus, too. Uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with all you. But more importantly, on on, on top of all that, it would you know want to thank, you know, all the people in the front lines and all the workers and the first responders for keeping us all safe uh, while putting their lives at risk. It's really. Uh, you know, a difficult time for everybody right now, but uh, those people should all be acknowledged, uh, the ones who lost their loved ones and the ones who are, you know, trying to keep us safe. And they're doing an incredible job, and as you just said so aptly, they're putting themselves at risk. Now, Ty, you've had a long history of being in cities that and, and supporting the firefighters. You, live, you played in New York, you live in New York, you've made many friends in New York. Talk about your experience during the coronavirus and and what you've been doing to stay sane and to stay positive well it's tough not being with my mother my mother's in toronto and i've been trying to come home for a while now but they say if i come home i'm gonna have to be quarantined for 14 days so um she has an iphone now and so you know we we i you know we um, facetime with her every day and um you know she's doing good and she just worries about everybody else but I'm in Florida with my wife and uh, my youngest daughter Avery. We're uh, we're here, kind of anxious to get back home. But uh, like everybody else, uh, we know that uh, you know this is uh, once and definitely, hopefully, uh, in our lifetime that we're all dealing with it, and all the families are dealing with it. And we're just uh, trying to stay busy, like everybody else, and trying to get through this together. And you know, I'm the only good thing out of it is uh, that I'm uh, working out, like you said, and I'm, I lost like 15, 16 pounds. So that's been the good thing because there's really nothing else to do. I, I can't believe I actually let myself go like I did. and uh, But I feel good again uh, physically, which is good. And uh, obviously it helps you mentally when you're in physically good shape. It's funny you say that, that you, that you let yourself go. Cause I've been speaking to so many people yesterday, you know, my, my regular job is working with live nation concerts. We're not doing concerts right now. Hopefully they're going to come back. Hopefully all live events are going to come back. But we had a zoom call yesterday with a bunch of people from work just to see how everybody was feeling. And 
a bunch of people brought that up, how they feel like they're not productive, how they feel like they're letting themselves go and how, ne- how negative thoughts are creeping in. You, you've gone the other way and, and your Instagram posts are so positive. What, what prompted you to do this? Were you going to do it anyway? Or did you just say, hey, there's an opportunity here? Or did it come naturally? Well, you know, um, people are asking me to do things on my Instagram stories, and uh, it makes their day. They always say, uh, you know, the people that had some met, met, with mental health, they always uh, send me messages, and I always try and do it to, you know, whatever I'm doing in life to be positive and try and make people's day. And But now more so than ever, uh, you know, I get not hundreds but thousands of messages, and, you know, people, if I miss a, a couple days, they're asking me to do stories. Please, you make my day. You know, I'm having a bad day. So, you know, I don't mind do it and that makes my day when I make people's day even if it's one person or a thousand people it doesn't really matter I just uh, try and stay positive and at the same time uh, I'm doing the Live Nation at home you know I think about you guys at Live Nation obviously uh, people aren't going to concentrate right now but uh, the music obviously helps us and when I'm working out I listen to music and uh, you know make it all part of like karaoke workouts with the TB12 stuff which uh, which has really got me back into shape you know what you're you're inspiring me because I, when I saw you starting to work out, I started to focus on it a little bit more on watching what I eat. So it's definitely having an impact on people. And I want to ask you about the, uh, the NHL. And if you're, if you're jo- just joining us, Ty Domi is our guest and we're here on Sportsnet nationally. And of course, online, you can listen on the radio player app, but Ty, the national hockey league has been talking about all these different scenarios on how they're going to come back and what it's going to look like. The latest one is there'll be some hub cities and they'll play games in those cities. And we're hearing May 15th players may be reporting to start working out. What are your thoughts on it? And how long would it take for guys to get ready to play high level hockey again? Well, first of all, I, I really, you know, I, I don't think hockey should be dictating when hockey starts. You know, I think the most important thing is the safety and the health and the well-being of the players and the staff and the refs. And, you know, should be the actual priority, and that should dictate when when they play again. You know, I, I don't uh, I don't believe that hockey can dictate when when they're going to play again. So this virus uh, obviously is dictating everything in our lives day to day now. So I, I don't really. Uh, see anybody having a crystal ball when they're coming back but what they're going through and you know speaking with my son every day um you know he's trying to stay in shape and mentally stay sharp but watch hockey and watch uh you know keep his mind sh- sharp but it's as you know it's not easy and when you miss when you're off the ice that long and your timing and everything just just you know it's just it just doesn't work you know what I mean? It just doesn't work. Uh, you don't just snap a finger and oh, we're going to play in the, in the playoffs right away. So it's going to take some time. And I, I, I just right now I don't see it at all. And it seems like we're the only sport that's really talking about coming back um, so soon. But uh, I guess we're trying to, you know, save the season. And uh, I understand that part. But at the same time, you definitely got to, you know, uh, obviously think of the safety of the uh, and the health of everybody's well-being. So second on the Leafs, most penalty minutes ever, uh, second most playoff games after George Armstrong, over a thousand games. You played for Toronto. You obviously played for New York. You played for Winnipeg. But tell us about your memories and playing for the Leafs and some your, your best memory playing for the Leafs and maybe something that was your, your worst memory playing for the Maple Leafs, if there is such a thing. Well, I think the, obviously you just nailed it on the head. The playoffs was most fun, you know, and, 
you say George Armstrong, I, I, you know, the playoff games he played, and I'm second to him, but I, I got to be for right wingers, but I got to say he, uh, he won a lot of cups, and uh, we came so close so many times, and we didn't have luck at the end of the day sometimes, you know, with the injuries we had and stuff, but had great teammates and uh, coaches and, you know, uh, the, the memories of the fans in Toronto and, uh, you know, being my hometown and everything, it was, it was really a dream come true, and, uh, you know, obviously uh, coming short in the playoffs really uh, obviously is, still sticks out a little bit. <laughs> But uh, the relationships you build with guys and the guys you went to war with and, the, you know, the coaches we had, like the memories of Pat Burns and Pat Quinn, they were you know, special guys and special friends and special coaches. So, And the teammates I had, you know, the the, the bonds I have. And, you know, Matt's, a, you know, I'm the godfather of one of his children, but he's he's like a brother to me, and we FaceTime a lot and uh, throughout this time. And Brian McCabe and Thomas Caberlet and, you know, the guys you went to war with, with Gary Roberts and Darcy Tucker and Shane Corson, all those guys, you know, Cujo and Eddie Belfour. Like, just so many names you can go on and on that uh, you just built so many relationships with and the bonds you had with all these guys. Uh, you know, we all went to war together. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a special bond when you play professional sports. And uh, when you see these guys, it's like you never left. Uh, it's like you never left, you know, and it's pretty cool. Our guest is Ty Domi, and Ty, I have to ask you, you brought up all these relationships, and I know a lot of the guys that you, that you brought up, but i got to ask you this question. Who was, the, who was the guy on your team that would always pick up the check? Who was the person that was the guy that, that put their credit card down first when you guys had team gatherings, team meals, or any time you went out? Well, there's no question it was Matt's. Um, you know, he was the guy that was the captain. He always, you know, he he uh, actually uh, was really good at that stuff, and he always was the guy that made sure, you know, made sure everybody's coming to dinners, team dinners, and we always had close gr- close group of guys. And uh, when Pat, when uh, Matt's got traded for uh, for Wendell, um, you know, there was a lot of criticism going on, but. Um, he brought me in, and when I got there, it was like we bonded right away. And uh, he took the leadership of that team, and uh, we, you know, he played a lot of playoff games there too. You know, and it was because of him we played a lot of playoff games. And uh, obviously, Cujo and Eddie helped us too. But uh, Matts was the big reason, and uh, obviously, you know, in my mind, he was the best player uh, to ever put the uniform on. And uh, I think being the all-time leading scorer with the team, I think. Uh, speaks for itself but unfortunately he didn't win a cup but at the same time he didn't have that uh that second guy to to really help him uh you know in his prime that uh, could have helped him put him over the top like the malkin the malkin and the crosbys and the taves and the canes you know you need you always you usually need two guys right the gretzky and messier and lemieux and jagger you know you always need two guys and uh, matt's never really had that guy but uh we had a lot of fun runs and uh, a lot of great memories yeah, you definitely had some teams that were entertaining. So, okay, I asked you who was the guy to put his card down first. Who's the guy who would put his card down last? Uh, definitely Gary Volk. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Volk used to go home with more more meal money than he went than he got before he went on the road. <laughs> yeah, because you guys got a per diem, right? When Thomas Cavalier first came to to the team, he used to take Cabby to Olive Garden on the road. But we changed that pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> so Ty, you, you 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 have a kid who plays in the NHL. I know you're very proud of Max. Two, this is a two part question. Second, what would you, what advice would you give to kids and parents now playing hockey? But first, I want to ask you, 
What would Ty Domi today, what piece of advice would Ty Domi today give to a young Ty Domi? What would you tell yourself if you had that opportunity to go back to change something about the way maybe you played or what you did in your career? Well, when you're playing your best game of your career, don't don't elbow somebody in the head and get suspended the rest of the playoffs. <laughs> That's one thing I wouldn't do again. <laughs> but uh, for kids, I you know I I always say have fun, you know, and work hard and have fun. And if you're going to take it serious and you get you want to take it serious and you want to make a living out of it, or go to school, you got to be all in. You can't be you know half in. And uh, it is tough to be a hockey player. There's no question. It's a it's a world sport and. Um, you know, if you play AAA, it's like five times, six times a week. And as a parent, you know, you're in the car all the time and you're driving around. And, you know, it's a big sacrifice as parents make. And that they sacrifice the other kids. Like, I had two daughters, but, you know, Max played AAA and I was always driving around. You know, Leander and I were always driving him around somewhere. So it was uh, – it's difficult when you're playing serious hockey, but at the same time, you want to have fun. There's nothing wrong with just having fun and getting your education and playing house league. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, playing sports is fun. I think, and being on team sports is, is, is great. And that's how you build relationships and how you learn how to be a team guy. But in Toronto nowadays, you know, if you're in traffic with the traffic and driving around five days a week, you really don't have time with all your other kids. So if you, as parents, it's a big sacrifice for families. So, um, you know, you got to either figure it out. If you want to have fun, just play to have fun. You don't have to. Everybody's not going to the NHL. The percentage is very, very small, as you know. So. Well, if you go to some rinks around Canada, whether it's Calgary, whether it's Vancouver, whether it's Toronto or anywhere else, there are a lot of people who think they're going to the NHL. And you talk about relationships, Ty, and we got a couple more minutes here before we let you go. But relationships are very important to you. You're a loyal guy. Your book, Shift Work, was outstanding. It was a bestseller. You talk about your relationships there, not just with, with important people or famous people, but with people that you would deal with every day. And that's one of the things I admired about you is that no matter how popular you got or how well-known you got, you always were nice to people that just were working at the rink, people that were maintenance people. And I, and I, and I appreciate that because, you know, we've talked about this before, how important family is. And, you know, my dad was a, my dad worked for Ontario housing and was a, was a landscaper and did maintenance. So I admire people that treat everybody well, but you have some pretty special relationships. Talk about your relationships with Mario Lemieux, Mark Wahlberg for, for three decades since your, since your New York days. Those are two guys that I know are very close friends of yours. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they're real guys, as, as you said, right? Um, you know, I was on the show with Al Morgani in Philadelphia the other day, and he was saying about Mario and Wayne, you know, the two best players in the league all those years, but they were the ones who always said hi to the people who worked in arena, who, who worked in the dressing rooms, and, you know, all the security guys. Like, they were the nicest guys to those guys. And, you know, that's Mario's uh, obviously one of my best friends, and, uh, you know, he's the same now. He's, he's just a humble guy, family guy, and a loyal friend, and, you know, when I went when I went through tough times, uh, Mario was the guy that was there for me. And same with Mark. Mark, I watched him wear all the hats. You know, from being Marky Mark to uh, to you know becoming uh, um, a, a Calvin Klein model, and then he you know his uh, acting career took off, and now he's a big producer and he's a business guy too. I you know I tell people he it's not by fluke. He is the hardest working guy in Hollywood. You know, so yeah. Well, he's a guy that I think at one point were you guys talking about having a boxing match. Yeah, he's he's already doing it again. You know, I pretty much Facetime with him every night. He, you know, it's a three-hour difference. He always he goes to bed early, but he Facetimes a, a lot. And uh, he's challenged me now. He's got he's actually got Max in his corner if we go at it. So I always tell him I'll end his career if he uh, if we do do it. So 
he needs that pretty face to keep doing it. <laughs> so, but you would do it for charity or something if it ever did happen. Yeah, that's what he wants to do. And you know, I always said, where do you want to do it? Wherever you want to do it. He's like, I said, where do you want to do it? Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden. I say to him, he goes, no, no, let's do it. Let's do it in Toronto. Let's do it in Toronto when you're in right in your soil. He says. So he's always uh, having fun with it. And, we might do it one day, but I, you know, I, like I tell him, I don't want to end his career because that pretty face of his, you know, makes him a lot of money now. So, so, but wait a second. Hey, you're talking about how early he goes to bed. He has a crazy workout regimen, right? Doesn't he get up at 4 a.m. every day or something? Yeah, ridiculous? not anymore though. Not anymore. He's not doing that right now. When he's working, usually that's what he does. But obviously, he's at home now, so he's he's uh, sleeping normal hours like everybody else. And. You know, he's uh, he's obviously a father, so he helps out at night and, uh, you know, in the morning. He's uh, he's a real family guy, too. So, But he's, he's, he's loving this last dance. He's loving he's loving the last dance. Well, so and let me let me ask you before we let you go, the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary on the final season for the Bulls. Tell us what you think of it. I don't know if you if you had any connection to Jordan, but tell us your thoughts on it. Yeah, no, it was amazing. I, I, I can't wait till tomorrow night, but uh, – my little story about Michael Jordan, we, uh, you know, I knew him pretty well because of Mario, you know, they always golf together and Mark. So I, I knew Michael pretty well and Charlie's good buddies with him too. So, uh, but when he was in Toronto one time, we met at the big easy and I was with Leanne actually. And, um, we went there and met him and Pippen and he pulled out a big cigar, gave me a cigar and said, you want to play pool? I'm like, play pool. The place was packed at the big easy. So I'm like, okay, you know, and I was a pretty good pool player. I didn't go to school when I was in junior. So we go, we go but to the back room and I said, you want to get it shut off? He goes, oh, no, it's okay. I want everybody to watch. I'm like, okay. And here I am thinking I'm going to beat Michael Jordan. So we put, and he was a little insulted that I wasn't going at the game the next day. Max was like two years old. So we, we play, we play pool and I, he's got six balls left. And the place is packed. People are standing on top of one another watching us, and we're smoking cigars. And uh, six balls left. Domi, you're not going to the game tomorrow? If I sink all these balls, you're going to the game tomorrow. That's the bet he made. Sure enough, all six balls, bink, 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 throws the cue, takes a dragon cigar, and says, your ticket's built, we'll call tomorrow. (laughs) So sure enough, next day I go, we'll call. Ticket's courtside. Max is two. I'm holding him on my lap the whole game. After the game, you know, oh, actually, he shot a three in front of us and pointed at us and did the, you know, with the gun right in front of us. Yeah. And then uh, after the game, he had security come and get me and Max, and he he was in a towel when we got in the in the locker room, and he walked around the whole team and take took a picture with Max with the whole team, and the last guy was Dennis Rodman, <laughs> and Max started bawling his eyes out. <laughs> but, you know, that's the type of guy Michael Jordan is, and that Chelly's Hall of Fame uh, party, I told Michael, I said, you know, that was a big uh, that was a big moment you did that for Max when he was two years old, those pictures with that whole team. He said, yeah, tell everybody, tell everybody why you came to the game and tell them about the pool game. So that's just the competitive edge that he has, and he wanted me to tell everybody that there were six balls left. The guy didn't forget. It was unbelievable, you know, was so many years later. So, you know, that's my uh, kind of fun story, and it you know, involves Max, too, and it's a, it's a great memory. And he remembered every single thing, and especially the pool game, which was pretty cool. And now watching this whole documentary, I, I just can't wait to watch the third and fourth episode. It's pretty cool. And Max loves it, too. So, And Max obviously uh, was the one that uh, was being carried around by Michael Jordan and towel. So <laughs> that's quite a memory. 
That's awesome. Ty, thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your friendship. And, and just as importantly, we appreciate your positivity. Stay strong, stay safe, and give our best to your family. That's uh, exactly what I was just going to say. You know, I wanted to tell everybody to keep their family safe and healthy and stay positive. You know, we're all going to get through this together. So God bless you, uh, Joey, and everybody else. All right. My man, Ty Domi, thanks again for doing this. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back on the Joey Vendetta Show on Sportsnet, and we're going to talk about hockey. But how important is it to you? We'll discuss next with an expert who's written a paper on exactly why it's important when we return on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It is hour number one, halfway through. Joey Vendetta here on the Sportsnet Radio Network, nationally across Canada. And of course, you can listen all over the world online on the Radio Player app. We're on at 960 in Calgary, 650 in Vancouver, and of course, 590 here in Toronto. And our overarching question today is, who's better, the Beatles or the Stones? Why do I ask that? It's not random. Jagger and McCartney kind of got into it a little bit. They, they say there's no competition. Don't believe it. The Stones and the Beatles were, I won't say mortal enemies in the 60s, but there was some pretty heavy competition. And Jagger said, after McCartney said that the Beatles were better, Jagger said, well, we're still playing stadiums, and the Beatles ceased to exist 50-plus years ago. He has a good point. So you can text us at 590-590 and give us your name and where you're texting from. And we got a text from the 905 that's in Ontario, for those of you listening in other parts of the country. Beatles or Stones? Beatles have a better catalog and change the music and cultural landscape. The Stones obviously are a better live show, but haven't put out anything good in 30 years. I don't know about that. The Stones have a new song that they put out a couple of days ago that actually isn't too bad. It's, I can't remember the name of it. It's called Living in Isolation, something to do with, with isolation. So anyway, we'll, we'll take some more of your opinions on who's better, the Beatles or the Stones, just because of, of that McCartney and Jagger little feud that they got into. It's called Living in a Ghost Town. That's the name of the song. It's their first new song in eight years, and it's a quarantine theme. Who would have thought as you sit there in track pants wondering why your refrigerator is following you around the house? We're going to get to some... NFL draft stuff, of course. The draft had the highest ratings in its history on Thursday, and understandably so. A captive audience. The I think the the average was 16 million people watching it, and it peaked at around just under 19, and a couple of Canadians being drafted. Well, more than a couple, but the two of note, Chase Claypool and Neville Gallimore. Chase Claypool got drafted by the Steelers, and Gallimore by Dallas. We'll get into why that's significant. Two very good players that I think are going to be stars for their team, especially Claypool. He's going to play for a Steeler team that could use a guy like him who's big and can go up for balls. Not ne- not necessarily the fastest player, but definitely the Steelers had a lot of red zone issues last year, and I think that this Canadian is going to be very helpful. We're joined now by another Canadian from the Wasserman Group. Troy McCann joins us now. Troy, how are you today? I'm doing well, Joey. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. You. So what do you do for the Wasserman Group? You're involved in branding and consulting brands? 
Yeah, I mean, my role there, I'm senior director of marketing, and so we get the opportunity to work with a number of brands, properties, and athletes throughout sports and entertainment. And uh, for me, lately, I've been focused, I focus a lot of my energy on, on hockey and, you know, what I think hockey can do for, for our country in, in these difficult, challenging times. And Wasserman, for those of you not familiar, Casey Wasserman is the founder. Casey Wasserman is a big wheel out in Los Angeles. I crossed paths with him a couple of times when I lived out there. And Wasserman comes from some pretty serious stock. His, his grandfather, his family, the Wasserman family, very long history in Hollywood. But Casey Wasserman is definitely one of the people that's responsible for bringing the Olympics to Los Angeles when they when they return to LA and he runs a huge agency they they're huge in golf and hockey as well they represent Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid amongst others and they have a ton of other athletes as well in their fold so the Wasserman group is is massive in sports and entertainment so you guys put together this this paper volume 1 it's called insights and action series and it's hockey sticks together and you talk about how important hockey is to Canada and how it's by far the most popular sport in Canada and even though the Raptors won the championship last year and we saw the Jurassic Parks all over the country and how incredible the support was because it's it's a lot easier to play basketball than it is to play hockey. There's a barrier to entry in hockey in terms of financially. Basketball has exploded in this country because of the Raptors. It started with Vince Carter, but now with the Raptors winning the championship, it's it's only gone further. And also with regards to the, the, the type of people that are during the country are sometimes more apt to play basketball than hockey because they come from countries that are warm weather countries. But tell us about this paper that you wrote. And, and first of all, why did you guys put this together? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think the reason we put this together, and as you mentioned, it's the first volume one in a series we're calling the insights and action series but the reason we put this together is i think right now every company is trying to find their way to contribute to the community and um we're often turned to for advice from you know brands that we work with properties that we work with and and we want to kind of spur people into action and we think that right now there's a lot of uncertainty out there about what's going to happen and if we could just bring a little more understanding we think that we can create a little more positive action and I know off the top of the show, you talked about positivity. and We're really looking forward to when sports comes back, but we also think there's a ton of opportunity for leaders in the hockey community to take some action now um, to rally the country together. Um, and, and we started the series off by focusing on hockey, largely because it's just so ingrained in our culture. Um, you know, what other nation is measuring their physical distancing um, by using a hockey stick as that measure, right? I think it just permeates our culture in so many ways, and we just know that the game has an incredible reach. There's nearly two and three Canadians interact with hockey in some way every year, whether that's as a fan or at the community level, um, or even just playing fantasy hockey. And um, we know that it's just a sport that has this ability to cut across gender, across generation, across geography and language and cultural background. And, and frankly, um, the passion for the sport runs incredibly deep. And we wanted to explore kind of the role hockey plays in our culture as Canadians at the community level, but also for the fan experience and to encourage more positive contributions. Yeah, so I have to ask you this question. It's a pretty simple one. With the barrier to entry and hockey enrollment going south in this country, what do you do 
to allow people who are going to face financial problems going forward to have their kids involved in this sport when it's not cheap to play. Yeah, and, and our study kind of pointed out the fact that on average, Canadians are, or sorry, excuse me, about 57% of Canadians are spending more than $5,000 a year annually on getting their kids involved in the game. And certainly with, you know, this um, crisis, putting some people livelihood um, in, in a little bit of peril, we know that there's going to be a challenge at the community level, but what, what, do I, what do I think the best response is? I think this is where there's a real opportunity for some of the brands, some of the properties who have consistently supported the families across Canada by easing that financial burden. I think when we come out of this, there's going to be even more emphasis on the importance of those companies being able to do it. But I also think that it presents an opportunity for some people to just find um, organizations to find a way to make hockey more inviting that's not as um, financially burdensome. Like okay. say hey, Andrew, can, Andrew, can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? I, I hate to interrupt. Are you on a speakerphone? No. No. Okay, because it sounds like you're calling from Mars or something. Anyway, continue on talking about how the uh, the the expense of hockey is going to be an issue going forward. Yeah, I mean, but I think. I think, like we know, the leaders in the hockey community can help take us out of that issue um, and support the families across the country. But equally, there's ways to play hockey that don't necessarily require ice time. And we can invite more people into the game and keep them physically active, keep them connecting with their neighbors. And I think there's a real opportunity to get people back out on the street playing this game. I think that's the way a lot of us grew up with the game in a really, really casual way and discovered our love for it. And I think that's what the game does at its heart, is it gets us together with our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our community. Yeah, and you see a lot of interaction with celebrities, Austin Matthews, and his his bromance with, with Justin Bieber, and, you know, talking about guys who have to try and figure out a way to keep their hockey skills up. We just had Ty Domi talking about how his son Max is, they're having issues as far as trying to figure out how to stay skillful and how to keep their... Their, their hockey sense up because look you, you don't forget to, to how to play when you play at that level but you also have to understand that once you haven't played for a few months and it's been a few you know it's going to be a few months by the time they start playing again you're rusty and it's going to take time to shake off that rust and you talk about playing street hockey I think at one point I don't know if it's banned anymore but at one point you couldn't play street hockey it was it was against the, it was against the law you would get a ticket in Toronto anyway I don't know what it's like in Vancouver or Calgary or anywhere else, but what do you say to people who think that basketball is gaining an edge in this country because of what happened with the Raptors, because of the fact that it's pretty easy to buy a ball and a hoop. It's a lot cheaper than buying hockey equipment and enrolling. And then there's the politics too. When you play hockey in cities where, where they're hockey cultures, there are a bunch of people that hang around rinks that create programs and there's training and there's all kinds of barrier to entry just to get your kid on a, on a travel team or, you know, on a, on a club team. And it's become, it's very political. And I'm not going to say it's like the United States with college football, because that's a whole other level of corruption, but there is a little bit of that stink on organized hockey in Canada. Yeah. And, and look, I'm, 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 proud as a Canadian uh, to support the growth of basketball too. What we saw last year with the Raptors was tremendous. We saw so many people getting behind the sport and I really do hope it sticks. I've seen more basketball hoops around the street 
than I've ever seen before. And I know that um, the organizations who work in basketball are proud of that, you know, a sport that we can also call our own as Canadians, Dr. Naismith creating it. Um, but but I, I think there's an opportunity for both to thrive. I don't necessarily think it's got to be one or the other. And I can tell you right now, I think we all feel that there's just a void in sports overall. And I think we'd be happy to be able to get back out there and play hockey or basketball, whatever it is, um, just to get us back out with our friends, with our neighbors. You just look at the ratings for the last dance and also for the NFL draft on Thursday night. And it just tells you everything you need to know about how people are, the, the, the country, the world is bereft of entertainment, especially sports. And hopefully they come back in some form. So Troy, thanks a lot for doing this. Thanks a lot for taking the time to explain this study and hopefully people stay fit and they stay active and they keep mentally sharp during these times. We appreciate your time, pal. Enjoy your weekend. Hey, thanks, Joey. You too. All right. That is Troy McCann from the Wasserman group and talking about a study they put together on how important hockey is to Canada. And there's no question. Hockey is the number one sport in Canada. No question. But people have found other things to occupy their time, whether it's personal wellness and yoga and working out at home. And of course, you've had to at this point, unless you're like me and you just have your you hug your fridge a lot. There's no social distancing from the fridge for me. We're going to take the break and we're going to come back and talk about a sport that is arguably the most popular in North America. And two Canadians are going to figure prominently in a sport that traditionally there aren't a lot of them. When we take the break, we'll come back and discuss here on Sportsnet. It is Vendetta back with you here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Across Canada, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and online on the Radio Player app. Or you can go to any of the station's websites and link up from there. Still to come in hour number three, we will chat with Alan Walsh, hockey agent who represents a bunch of NHL players and players around the world in different leagues. Find out what he thinks about the latest plan the NHL has about playing games in hub cities and using the facilities from the teams in those hub cities. They will be major cities. And we heard Brendan Shanahan on Tim and Sid talking about how Toronto has been approached to be one of them, but we're hearing Edmonton, we're hearing Carolina, any place where this pandemic is minimized. I don't know. Toronto is, is actually for the size of it. It hasn't been overwhelming because we've actually behaved like relatively smart human beings. And the government in Canada has done a fantastic job, comparatively speaking, to the government in the United States, which has had its issues on the federal level, to say the least. Unless, of course, you believe that injecting Lysol is a good idea, which, of course, it's not by any stretch of the imagination. And as I said earlier, before we get to the NFL draft and a couple of Canadians who went in the second and third round, I mentioned that street hockey was illegal in Toronto. It was illegal up until 2016. And city council reversed that, rightfully so. And our text's question today is, who's better? The Beatles or the Stones? McCartney and Jagger got into it about who's better. McCartney said the Beatles were better. And Jagger, of course, countered by saying, hey, we're still a band and we play stadiums. Now, McCartney's played stadiums as well. 
So McCartney could say that. And if you look at it from that standpoint, it's not like they were, it's not like the McCartney disappeared after he left the Beatles. Neither did John Lennon or George or Ringo, but the whole is better than the sum of its parts. And as I was talking about the good that is brought out in people and organizations, and we've seen a ton of it, this country is getting together tomorrow night. Musicians are. And Canada is uniting to perform. And we're going to have some musical performances that are going to be outstanding. Stronger Together is going to air everywhere. And an example of that is what the Maple Leaf sports and entertainment people are doing. And I have to give props to them. Fantastic work by turning their arena, Scotiabank Arena, into a giant kitchen and putting together meals for people that need those meals. And what are we talking about here? How many? Well, it started at 2,800, and they're going to get to 10,000 meals a day individually. Individually put together meals. So props to Michael Friesdale and Nick Eves and Dan Morrow and everybody at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment for putting food together for people that need it right now more than ever. Food banks in Canada are depleted as people are struggling. And we know that sometimes the things we take for granted, other people don't have. And if you look at this Stronger Together, two ensemble that's going to happen on Sunday night, it's going to have an incredible lineup of Canadian talent, including hockey players like Morgan Riley is going to be involved. Connor McDavid's going to be involved. Haley Wickenheiser and famous Canadians, Margaret Atwood, Penny Alexiak, Rick Hansen, Rick Mercer, Russell Peters, and Alessia Cara, the Arkells, Bare Naked Ladies, Bianca Andreescu, Brian Adams. It's going to be great. And it just brings out, you know, people show their true colors during times like this. And it's nice to see this country getting together and showing just what it means to be Canadian. And the National Football League draft, highest ratings it's ever had. And a couple of Canadians went in the second and third rounds fairly early on. And that's not to say we haven't had successful Canadians before. But the Pittsburgh Steelers went into the draft, and they're a marquee team. They're one of the great teams in the history of the National Football League. So you're thinking, what are they going to go after? They have a bunch of needs, right? Well, they had to wait until day two because they traded their first-round choice. And when they got there, 49th overall, they took Chase Claypool, 6'4", 230-pound wide receiver from Notre Dame, who's from Abbotsford, British Columbia. So this guy can wheel. This guy can fly. He had a 4.42 at the combine. That's where they test football players for their various attributes. The Steelers are a team that knows how to very, very good at developing wide receivers, taking wide receivers. And the, the last guy to go this high for the Steelers was Santonio Holmes, who turned out, turned out to be pretty well. But they, the Steelers have had great history with wide receivers going all the way back to the Lynn Swan, John Stallworth era. And Claypool is going to be a great wide receiver. 
and he's going to help this team. He's going to get the chance to he's going to get the chance to play because the Steelers have had trouble in the red zone. They're the worst in the NFL in the red zone. And so Claypool is going to be a guy who can come in and size-wise he can jump for balls that a lot of defensive defensive backs aren't 6-4. That's why those tall wide receivers, especially the strong physical ones, they don't have to blow by you. They don't have to be incredibly fast. And this guy's improved every year. So his first year at Notre Dame, he only had five catches for about 81 yards. Second year, 29 catches for 402. Junior year, 50 for 639. And by his senior year, he was the number one target on the team. 66 catches for 1,037 yards and 13 touchdowns, which in college football is a lot. And the Steelers have done a great job, as I've said, over the years of developing wide receivers. They, whether it's Mike Wallace or Heinz Ward, or as I said, you know, Santonio Holmes. And this guy reminds me of Plaxico Burris. He's tall. He can jump. He can definitely physically dominate defensive backs. It'll take him a minute to, to figure it out. But it's great to see a Canadian get an opportunity like I think he's going to get. And we'll talk more about the NFL draft in the next couple of segments because I thought the draft was pretty outstanding from just from an entertainment standpoint, right? It's, it's funny how you have to, through necessity, sometimes in life you have to think about alternate means and alternate motivation. And the NFL draft turned into a draft-a-thon. Well, it worked because people were bored out of their minds and they watched the draft like it was a live sporting event because it was a live sporting event. It just didn't have a game involved. And we know the ratings for the last dance were fantastic, but the draft had things that we've been missing. Mystery, intrigue, not knowing for certain what would happen. Well, outside of our normal daily lives, which have enough uncertainty for us to last the rest of our lives, but the NFL draft was already something that everybody had to tune into, but it became a bigger deal than it's ever been. Whether it's Bill Belichick in that, if you haven't watched it, Bill Belichick, for a guy who makes as much money as he, he does, he either is the greatest example of austerity or he's pulling one of the great practical jokes of all time. He's in a house with a small kitchen that looks like a place that New England thugs would hide out when they're trying to avoid the Massachusetts State Troopers. It was a tiny kitchen with these little blinds and no Patriot logos anywhere except for a piece of paper with the word Patriots stuck on it, taped to his computer, and his dog Nike was there at times. And then Bill would just disappear. Compared that to Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, the most valuable franchise in sports, or second, depending on Man U. But Jerry Jones on his $250 million yacht with people holding phones for him. The draft was fantastic from an entertainment standpoint. And I suggest that maybe they do this every year because I'd rather look at the inside of guys' houses or ladies' houses or who's, dogs' houses, wherever you're doing the draft from. We're going to take the break. Still to come in the next couple of hours, we're going to chat with Alan Walsh about the NHL season and escrow and the salary cap. 
Sean Avery will stop by, and I'm sure he will have lots to say about the NHL and other topics. Julie Stewart-Binks is going to join us when we return, and she is a broadcaster of great repute, but also is in New York, and she's a Canadian. We'll also talk to Matt Devlin when we return on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And we are back on the program that asked the question. Really? I got to eat that? That's all that's left in the fridge? I've noticed when I go shopping now, the lineups aren't so bad. There's toilet paper. Has anybody run out of toilet paper? Paper towels? Yeah, disinfectant. That's a little bit of an issue. Unless, of course, you're Donald Trump. Then, of course... He should be the first guy to inject it. I mean, if you think it's going to work, you might as well try it first, right? It's mind-boggling, isn't it? We are going to get to a discussion on... Well, a bunch of stuff happened this week. I don't know if I'm going to get to it, but let's see. Tiger, Peyton, Phil, Brady in the match, too. Are you going to watch that? If things are the way they are, I'm sure everyone's going to watch it. That's Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson... And Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, they're going to play golf with no fans. And we know golf's going to start in June without fans. Is the NHL season going to start without fans? We're going to talk to Julie Stewart Binks, longtime friend, played hockey with her a couple of times. She's a pretty good hockey player. And, of course, has been on television and working for Fox Sports, has worked for Barstool, and is living in New York currently, and she has worked for ESPN as well. And joining us now on the line, I believe she's there, is Julie Stewart-Binks. Oh, she's not. Okay, we're going to get her in a second here. So so we're going to touch upon this, this A-Rod J-Lo buying the Mets. So it's J-Rod, as the guys who were on before me were talking about, Rob Wong and company. J-Rod is a great name. It's better than Benifer. And Rob Gronkowski to Tampa Bay has kind of gone quiet because it was overshadowed by the NFL draft being as good as it was, whether it was Jerry Jones' yacht or Cliff Kingsbury duking it out with Rams coach Sean McVay on who had the better backyard in a place where we have trouble growing grass. Now, Kingsbury lives in Arizona. And if you saw his indoor-outdoor space, it was pretty mind-boggling how perfectly manicured it was. And it has I don't know what it's called, and maybe you can tell me if you want to text us at 590-590 and include your name so I can give you credit. What's it called when you put concrete down and you grow grass in between it? Just a really thin square of grass, right? It's framing the concrete. That's what Sean McVay had going. Him and Kingsbury had the same thing going on. So what is that? Is there a name for that? And I should know this because I lived in, I had places in Arizona and still have a place in LA, but my my place in LA has no grass because it's not easy to grow grass. Not the smartest thing in the world is to spend thousands of dollars a year watering your lawn because water is at a premium. You know who else came across very well for me in the NFL draft? I have to say Roger Goodell. He had wardrobe changes, not quite like a Lady Gaga or Madonna, but he had a wardrobe change where he went from a jacket to just that pullover sweater with the shirt 
And I don't know if he's a robot or not. He might be a robot, but he showed some, they may have programmed him with some human characteristics because he was kind of almost bordering on funny, especially with the virtual booze that he was talking about and talking about how, come on, you can do better. You can do better. I don't know if you watched the draft. You must have because the ratings were good and there's probably nothing else on. Although you can watch some old hockey games, which have been great. But the the Roger Goodell as a human being thing, I got to say it, 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 it warmed me a little to him because Goodell is a guy that's taken a lot of grief over the years. But his basement, which kind of looked like a Norman Rockwell painting, everything was wood. It looked like a prop to me. Do you think it was real? I don't think it was real. I think it was, there's no way that that's his basement. This guy makes $45 million a year. How does he live in a basement that looks like it's the inside of a van in 1976 with wood paneling? So anyway, Goodell was pretty funny. I thought he was, I thought he was enjoyable to watch for a change as opposed to the general robotics. And again, he gets a lot of grief, but for 45 million, you kind of deserve it. Okay. So I think that the other winner in the in the draft is Canada. Why do I say that? Because a couple of Canadians are going to get the shot to play in the National Football League in some really significant roles. And I was talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers and their ability to draft wide receivers and how Chase Claypool – from BC is, I think, is going to thrive in that system. But also, the Dallas Cowboys are pretty good at putting together defenses. And Neville Gallimore, who's from Ottawa, and again, it was great to see him when he got drafted, his family hugging him, and he was, they look like they were in a, they look like they were in a mall or something, or they have a huge basement or one or the other. It was weird. Their setup was kind of weird. I don't know if those plants were fake or not. I wonder what people do when they're getting ready for the NFL draft with their families. What should I wear? What should I look like? Should I steal my boyfriend's cell phone? It was pretty entertaining. So we're joined now by Julie Stewart Binks. Thanks a lot for doing this, Julie. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks, Joey. Good to be on. It's been a while since we chatted and, uh, hit the ice together too. So missing those days. Yes. We had the chance to play. The first time I met you was at Dodger stadium. We played hockey at Dodger stadium. We were the first people, I think outside of Luke Robitaille, cause I, I, I went on purpose cause Luke Robitaille organized this, the LA Kings and the, and the ducks were playing the outdoor game at Dodger stadium, which we got to go to. But that was the first time I met you. We played in a, I, I'll, I'll loosely term myself a celebrity. There were actually some real celebrities there. Cuban <laughs> Gooding was there, David Boreanaz, yourself, and, and a bunch of others. But I think Michael Vartan was there. And so, and Rob Blake was my D partner. But I remember we <laughs> we met there and got on the and got on the ice. And we got to play hockey at Dodger Stadium. And Luke was the first guy to skate on the ice. And then I think I I, I kind of barged my way on and I got to be the second person to skate on the ice. But what's your memory of that and, and playing hockey in Dodger Stadium? Pick up hockey with no fans. 
Yeah, honestly, it was one of the coolest experiences ever. And thankfully, we were on the same team because, as I remember, you were re- you were pretty good. I'm not just um, blowing smoke here, but I believe you got a couple goals. But it was neat. No, I, I scored you one. The word I scored celebrity. One. You scored one. Hey, that's yeah. one more than I scored, definitely, or even had a shot. Uh, I thought it was like one of the coolest things ever. As you mentioned, you have all these celebrities. You're you're on the same line as like Cuba getting Jr. At least I was the energy line, aka. We were just getting mm-hmm. people fired up. Not, you know, if you can't, if you can't uh, score any goals, you got to figure out a way to be effective somehow. But I found it interesting because you mentioned we're at Dodger Stadium. It's like 75 degrees outside. It's so hot. And I remember we were almost like the guinea pigs before the Kings and the, Do- and the, Kings and the Ducks came on because the ice, I remember at the end after we played, was like kind of slushy, a little bit choppy, the – boards and the glass were all fogged up. We are kind of like, uh, this is not a good sign ahead of the stadium series game. Obviously that wasn't a factor when they actually hit the ice, but it was, it was a pretty neat night and I'll, I'll never forget it. Cause then I ended up interviewing Luke Robitaille while I was in my hockey gear on the ice. And I thought, well, this, like, this is it. I can die happy now. It was a pretty cool night. Yeah. I don't think we got to shower after from what I remember. I remember we were all sweaty. No, there wasn't yeah. a locker room. We didn't get it, right. <laughs> No, nope, it was like we were in the we weren't in the clubhouse. We were just sort of like in a room, and everyone was just hanging out. But I think we had some Canadian beer, so that that was a nice little cherry on the top of a great night. Yeah, we weren't in the clubhouse. We were in the we were in the outhouse, from what I could remember, because it kind of yeah, snowed. Yeah, yeah, we, we were not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm it was still we fun. even got out there. Yeah, a bunch of it was celebrities like us. Yeah. Okay, so. So before we talk about your career and the stuff that you're currently doing, you're you're in New York right now, am I correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you're in New York City proper. I am in uh, the epicenter of the world and the epicenter of what is the coronavirus at this moment. It is I'm in Manhattan. It's a beautiful day out right now. And to our Canadian listeners, it's about 16 degrees. So it's pretty nice. And we've had a really weird week. We even had a tornado. So that, like, helped people stay inside. But, you know, we're in a city where people didn't move to New York City to stay inside. They moved to New York City to be out, to go to bars, restaurants, do every single thing the city has to offer. So everyone has pretty small apartments. I'm in a studio, so there's literally no rooms. But it has been okay. I've been able to make do. But the hard part is, is there's just so many people in this city. So... Even if you go outside for a 10-minute walk, there's 7 million people going outside for a 10-minute walk. So it is, it's kind of scary in that regard. Um, for the most part, people are doing their part in what we have to wear masks every time we go out, gloves, every single thing. But sometimes you get people that don't do that. So you just have to, you have to take the precautions to just be aware of people that aren't following guidelines. Okay, so you're a Canadian. You're in New York. You lived in L.A. You moved into New York for your career. And when this pandemic hit, I remember I, I texted you and asked you if you were okay. And you said, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit weird. But how has it gone from that time when I texted you to see how you were doing to where we are today? Tell us about the progression and how quickly you realized that, that this was serious and how quickly New York City mobilized and everyone got off the streets. First of all, thank you so much for texting me to see how I was doing. Because I saw that you had put something up, you know, we... If you're not texting people in this moment to find out how they are, then you aren't really a good friend and they're not a good friend to you. So, you know, reach out to the people that mean something to you. And so I, at the moment, like early March, my mom and I decided to go to Vegas and 
you know, we we're going, I think it was right at the end of February, early March. And at the time, this was like starting to gain steam, at least for people that were tuned into it. You know, a lot of people kind of, you know, didn't really necessarily think of it as something that would affect them on their day-to-day basis because it's in Italy, it's in South Korea, it's in China, it's not in Canada, it's not in the United States. So, but when we were there in Vegas, we were already using Perel, um, and we were kind of being like cautious just around other people, but it wasn't really a big deal. Then, obviously, it escalated really quickly, and I was on air at SNY, that's Sportsnet New York, and we were talking, I remember, in one day, all the different shows I did, it was like breaking news. We go from no fans being allowed at March Madness in one of my shows in the afternoon, and everyone's saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe no fans at March Madness. It's not even March Madness then. To then, five hours later, Rudy Gobert contracting coronavirus and the NBA suspending itself. We go on air talking about that. And then we eventually, in the two days' time, our whole network is essentially off air at that point. So the fact that, I mean, it's not surprising with the virus being exponential spreading that we were able to see everything sort of devolve so quickly. And when you think about it, and I know we're sort of getting used to this new normal. I don't know about you, Joey, but like I'm getting used to being inside. I I feel odd when I go outside. Like all my plans are in here. My birthday's this week. I'm like, yeah, I got a birthday in my one room that I've been in for the last six weeks. And it doesn't feel weird anymore. And so when you think back to those days of like going in and seeing sports and having life like that, it feels so foreign, but then that was only six weeks ago. So it is kind of crazy how much things have changed. And I moved during this time because I thought, hey, why not like add something else to the plate of stress and move departments? Uh, not the best time to be doing that. But luckily enough, I'm still able to work. I host a show on Fubo TV, Fubo Sports Network, which is a cable streaming service called Drinks with Thinks. And we've been able to still do shows. So I'm thankful for that. I'm going to be doing some other work. But you never know, right? Like a lot of us are kind of going day by day. Oh, is my company going to cut my salary? Is my job still going to be around? And so your perspective changes. Yeah, and you bring up some points that many people are are dealing with. And if you're just joining us right now, it's Julie Stewart-Binks, who is a Canadian in New York, who I've known for a long time and, of course, has worked at, at Fox and has worked for ESPN and done a ton of sports coverage and and again, moved to New York from L.A. for for her career. And now we're hearing what the reality is of being in New York right now under the current circumstances. Let's turn our attention to the draft. You had a couple of I was looking on your Twitter and you can follow her on, on Twitter at at JSB underscore TV. And the NFL draft on Thursday was the highest rated draft ever. Now, the NFL draft has become an event. It's become a made for TV event. And it's pomp and circumstance and red carpets and incredible outfits and all kinds of beautiful shoulder programming, as they call it, where you're, where you're telling the story of the draft pick and the the, the, right. the incredible struggle to become a high draft pick. But I got to tell you, the NFL draft has, has happened over the past, and, and it's going again tonight. The rounds, I think, through four through seven, or th- yeah, four through seven are happening, and, yeah. and that'll be done. But the first, the first three fa- rounds of, of the NFL, specifically Thursday round round number one, I thought was spectacular, and I thought that. The being able to see Jerry Jones sitting inside his yacht or Mike McCarthy with his head too close <laughs> to the camera. Those were things that we don't get to see normally. What did you think of it? No, I, I think you, you hit it right on there. It has been, first of all, 
credit to ESPN ABC for what they've done because heading into this, a virtual NFL draft, thinking about the technological nightmare that could have happened, and we've had basically no problems whatsoever. You almost, when you're watching it, I'm friends with Trey Wingo from ESPN, watching him on his own in a studio by himself having to navigate to all these different analysts who are, you know, all over the country in their different homes, then throwing to all these different uh, GMs and coaches all over. The fact that the technology has been that quick, and credit to everyone behind the scenes at ESPN, because so many of them are in the studios, in the control rooms, social distancing, wearing their masks, while still having to pull off the biggest event in the NFL right now. And so credit to them. But I think what you said, it's funny. It's seeing Bill Belichick's dog at his computer while you get a live look in there. You're seeing um, Mike Rabel from the Tennessee Titans and wondering, oh, is someone on the toilet in the background, in the mirror? Like, these people are living the exact same life that we are right now. And we've always put them on, you know, we put them on a pedestal. Pedestals, These coaches as general managers, they're, they're celebrities for us right now. And then we see, oh, hey, their living room kind of looks like mine. Or looking at some of these draft picks, they're like, oh, that, that couch is something that, like, my parents have. And it sort of brings you back down to earth. I will say, not when you look at Jerry Jones on his $250 million yacht or Cliff Kingsbury in his, like, massive house that is insane. I'd love to be quarantined in there. But it is something that, you know what, Joey, I just don't think we need all these red carpets. We don't need all this sort of extra pomp and circumstance that I will say is in a lot of other sports and a lot of other regards. Maybe that's just something that doesn't come back after all this. Maybe we don't need to spend all this money on these things. And yes, we do. We spent years and years building these things up to become these, these huge monstrosities of appointment viewing. But look at what you can do with with Zoom and Skype and Google Hangouts and just everything that everyone's using, you can still pull off something that got 16.1 million viewers on Thursday night. So uh, kudos to ESPN and everyone involved because it's seamless. I don't even, I'm watching it right now. You'd never even know that everything's just being done virtually. No, they've done a great job. And I think that it just kind of goes to show you that when you're faced with circumstances where you need to, show ingenuity you can especially when you have the resources that the nfl and espn do but again as you said there have been no technical glitches it's been pretty incredible and i also love the insight and the view into people's personal lives especially now when it's all yeah. about relatability you know you talk about being in a, in a studio apartment in new york city and you're celebrating your birthday there and it's weird to even go outside and and then you look at jerry jones on his yacht or cliff kingsbury or or as i said before you came on the air belichick Belichick looked like he yeah. was in some sort of a hideout in the woods of New England, and he's avoiding the police. I mean, that's not Bill Belichick's in, in house. His house in Nantucket, so he's yeah. That's that's, that's not. A, I don't buy it, man. That's Belichick. There's no way that Bill Belichick has a kitchen that or dining room that small. So, Julie, th- thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate it. We'll get you on again in the in the near future. And take care of yourself, and make sure that you have a great party for your birthday wherever. It may be, and whoever's going to be invited virtually, I'll, I'll expect a, a Zoom invitation shortly for your Zoom birthday. You got it. Thanks for having me on. You had a stacked list of guests today. Somehow I made the cut. Go, Leafs, go. Everyone stay safe. Stay home. Let's do this. We look forward to talking to you soon. Be safe, and thanks again for being on the show. We're going to take the break and come back with a gentleman who just became a Canadian citizen. And I'm sure he's really happy about that. He also called 
arguably the greatest run in Canadian sports history. We'll discuss when we return on the Sportsnet Radio Network. You are listening to the Joey Vendetta Show. You can get the podcast after, in case you missed some of it. And our guests, including prior to Julie Stewart Binks, who was just on. In hour number one, we had Ty Domi. Great interview with him. So if you want to hear that, and I am slightly partial. If you want to hear that, you can get that where you get your podcast. Just put in the Joey Vendetta Show. Subscribe, rate, and review, as the saying goes. And still to come, in hour number three, we will chat with Sean Avery, as well as hockey agent Alan Walsh, who's always entertaining. Two very opinionated individuals. But right now, it's my pleasure to be joined by a guy that's on this radio station a lot. He's on television. He is, as I always say, sartorially resplendent. Although, I have to ask the question first of Matt Devlin, Raptors play-by-play legend. I'll call him legend and new Canadian. Matt, before I ask you how you're doing, have you been wearing track pants a lot lately? Uh, it's the only thing I've been wearing. I think I went uh, an entire uh, week wearing the same roots track pants. <laughs> I now, mean, it's the sweatpants every day. That's it. Sweatpants and T-shirts and, you know, uh you know, a couple of hoodies and a couple of fleeces, and that's about all you need. And I've been uh, rocking the same flip-flops as well for the last uh, 30 days plus. So, um, but anyway, look, Joey, great to, great to hear your voice. Yeah, it's nice to, nice to talk to you as well. And I know I checked in with you a few weeks ago when this was going on. So it's good to have you on the show. And, and we've, we've experienced the, the reliving very early on of, of the, Toronto Raptors playoff run, the championship run, which is arguably in Canadian sports history. In my opinion, I have to say it's the greatest run of any Canadian sports team. That's, that's, you know, my personal opinion, just because of the way it galvanized the country. I don't think there is any team in the history of this country that galvanized the entire population of Canada like that Raptors run did. From your perspective as a guy who's been with the team for a while and coming from the United States, you were born in, in Syracuse, you, you went to school in, in Boston, at Boston College, and of course you worked all over the place, and you've become a Canadian. Talk about that experience from beginning to end and Kauai and what, what, how, what that meant for you, and just did you see it turning into what it turned into? Well, I think throughout the years, Joey, that you – always had a sense of how special uh, the Toronto Raptors were with respect to their fan base, without question, the best NBA fan base. They travel. Uh, It's very much akin to, you know, the college football atmosphere that you see uh, in the Southeastern conference or in parts of the ACC or big 10 where people travel to go see their team play. And I've always seen that growth, and the evolution of that throughout my 12 seasons. And certainly last year it was in full force. And there were so many unbelievable moments throughout uh, the four rounds, inclusive of during the NBA finals where, you know, after games uh, Raptor fans stayed and sang, Oh Canada. Uh, But it started as we both know 
with one of those moments where everybody said, uh-oh, here we go again, or oh no, here we go again, with the loss to the Orlando Magic. And I remember yep. the next day talking to Nick Nurse, and it was really, you know, one of the first times, in fact, later on in uh, the, that postseason run, Kyle Lowry talked about how uh, just on a couple of occasions all year long did Nick really get after the team, and it was after game one. You know, just speaking to the level of, hey, look, you know, we have players on this roster that have been here, done it before, uh, players that have come up short in conference finals, have come up short in the NBA finals. You know, obviously a couple, Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard had won uh, with San Antonio. So, you know, let's get together and let's do this. And, and to me, that really started everything with the four games run against Orlando. Then you get into the Philadelphia series, which uh, was to me their most difficult matchup um, because, you know, in hockey terminology, Philadelphia played heavy. They were big and heavy. They were long. And the Raptors had to match that. They did. And you have one of the most remarkable shots in the history of the NBA and Kawhi's shot. And then you get into uh, the Milwaukee uh, series. And I'm giving you the abbreviated version of all this from where I sat. Mm. But you have this game one where the Raptors, I thought, outplayed Orlando up until that fourth quarter when they just ran out of juice. I, you know, that game seven, a game winner uh, was on a Sunday night. You're playing game one on a Wednesday. And so, you know, to me, the quick turnaround was a little bit too much. But, you know, you come back, you get ready for game two, and it was the one outlier game. I mean, they just weren't in it. And I thought there was always some significant points throughout um, every series. Uh, and one of them was Marcus all saying, Hey, that game was on me and you're down Oh two. And when Kawhi's asked, where are you going? He said, back to Toronto for game three, you know? And so you go back to Toronto game three, double overtime victory and away you go. Um, and then of course we get into the NBA finals where, uh, after the first two games, Joey, the series is split one game each. And Nick Nurse comes into the locker room and says, all right, they got one here. Let's go get one there and, you know, come back and get home court. And what does Kawhi say? Kawhi says, you know what, let's, you know, forget that. Let's go get them both. And that's what they did. And so there were so many special moments within that that were shared by uh, our fellow Canadians that everyone was, you know, 59 different Jurassic parks. And it just seemed like a whole nation was watching. Why is, why is Draymond green such a, why does he bitch so much about everything? Is it just his nature to be a bitch or I'm trying to understand. Cause he says, because, cause he says that the Raptors wouldn't stand the chance against golden yeah. state if they were healthy and it's revisionist history and buddy you lost it doesn't matter we know yeah. kd got hurt we know that we know that clay got hurt but what is it with draymond green that he he rips kevin durant then he rips the raptors what is it with this guy he just can't let it go no and and, and what's interesting too if you look back at the history of the golden state warriors you know there were some that believe that golden state would have never gone on to win their first uh, nba title 
without the fact that Kawhi Leonard, as we may recall, uh, got undercut by Zaza Pachulia, and he was injured in that series against the Warriors when he was with the Spurs. And so there's many different examples throughout the history of every sport, as we know, that, you know, certain players are either, you know, not there or playing injured. Kyle Lowry uh, was playing injured. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, we know, obviously, with the amount of minutes that he was playing. I mean, there were significant things that were going on as well for the Toronto Raptors and why, Draymond decides to go down that road. I I don't know. They still had Steph Curry. They still had Draymond Green himself, and they and they had Clay Thompson, obviously, uh, up until that final injury, you know, with his knee. But uh, it's unfortunate, and I don't think you know. I think he, you know, clearly he just you know wants to bring it up, and and there's some angst yeah. there, you know, for you know Draymond and and Kevin, if you. You know, there there were times where, you know, they didn't necessarily get along along the way. So uh, for whatever reason, that's, you know, how he's deciding to try to write that history. But as we know, it doesn't matter. Raptors won it. You know what the funny thing is that he he kind of badmouths himself by saying, oh, well, if we were healthy, meaning, well, I'm not good enough alone, so if I didn't have these other superstars, then it would be a different story. Let, let's talk about the – you talk about Canada and the way the Raptors fans travel well. You're an American. You moved to Canada. We're in a situation now where the Canadian government versus the U.S. government in terms of the way they're handling this current situation – I don't like to use the word crisis because I don't like to, to create more fear than, than the news networks are already doing a fine job of that. And people are already anxious enough. But you've become a Canadian, if I'm not mistaken, recently. You became a Canadian citizen. Can you tell us how you feel about being a Canadian? Well, you know, this obviously goes back now for, uh, to when we first moved here. Uh, my wife and three sons. Uh, back in 2008, you came here originally on a work permit and uh, then ultimately got permanent residence and then, you know, made the decision, uh, you know, to become citizens. And it was amazing for me and my family because while, you know, the Raptors were going through their playoff run, uh, that's when, uh, you know, we actually were called, you know, I mean, it's a process, as you can imagine, uh, took well over a year. It's probably 18 months uh, by the time we first filed all of the paperwork uh, to when we took the oath, which was between uh, game one and game two of the uh, NBA finals. And I was uh, I'm trying to think back now to when I, I, I left with my U.S. passport because I had to turn in my permanent resident card uh, on that Friday, we left for game three. I, I, was a, I wasn't able to get the Canadian passport, I think, until prior to game five. I think it was the, that Monday, game five, uh, if my memory serves me right, that I, that, that I was able to get the, um, you know, my Canadian passport. But uh, it was, you know, really uh, an amazing and emotional experience uh, when you're in uh, the room with 104 other uh, new Canadians that uh, take the oath from 20, I think it was 24, 27 different countries. Uh, and, you know, as I was sitting next to, you know, a young man that, you know, was 
you know, here obviously to, you know, start a new life. And uh, you think about generationally uh, who, you know, my ancestors actually, you know, are originally from Ireland and they came through uh, Canada before working their way down to um, New York and um, more specifically, you know, Brooklyn, New York. But uh, so it just brings up a lot of those sort of thoughts and, and um, it was extremely emotional for all of us and, and a great day. So, Maddie, before we let you go, a couple more questions here. And I picture you doing this interview in track pants, but in formal track pants with a track suit jacket, because that's just how I picture you. And you, no, your yeah, hair is well, done. You, and you... the, picture would, the picture would be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I just got the sweatpants on. I got the flip-flops, a T-shirt, and, and a... Uh, a fleece. That's it. I'm pretty yeah, laid and, back and on you... the couch. Pretty laid back on the couch watching <laughs> the, the the only live action that's going on now, which is I think they're into the fourth round. The Jacksonville Jaguars are on the clock. Are on the clock? Week. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, is my wardrobe. <laughs> my wardrobe's been on the clock for about six weeks. So yeah. I, I gotta touch upon this before before I let you go. This season we don't know how it's going to play out. The NHL is talking about creating hub cities where they're going to play games. There's, there's word that they've told players May 15th is the day you're going to report and come back and start working out and getting, and getting ready to play without fans. Nick nurse has done an incredible job this year. He's in my mind and many people's minds far and away, the coach of the year, the team has had injuries. They lost Kawhi Leonard. They were pegged by many and we don't, I don't particularly care what U.S. pundits have to say. I lived there for 20 years, so I don't I don't have the small penis syndrome that a lot of people do here in Canada about the U.S. I live there. Be happy you live in Canada. Be happy you live in the place where we welcome people and we treat people well, especially right now. So I don't particularly care what the U.S. has to say. I knew the Raptors would be good. I knew the Raptors were probably going to finish third or second in the conference just because they have the experience and they're, you know, steel gets forged through adversity and they went through adversity and they won the championship. But how much of a shame would it be for this team not to have the opportunity to defend their championship and the way that they've been playing with the job that Nick nurse has been doing? Well, look, you know, number one, we all want everyone to be safe and healthy. Right. And so, you know, there's so many different things at play as we know uh, with respect to getting back and just like, you know, with, um, the NHLers, you know, not only do you, you know, come back, but you now are going to need some time, you know, to get be on the court, uh, get back in to game shape, right? Because, you know, this whole season you're building for that postseason. And so it would certainly be great to be able to, to see all this, you know, played out. Uh, where the Raptors and the NBA returns and they get to defend their title. But if they don't defend it this year, they're going to defend it next year uh, if there isn't the NBA. But I do think that um, there's a good chance that it may uh, come back. Nick Nurse is the coach of the year. I think uh, he proved that last year, uh, actually, in the uh, NBA playoffs. Uh, he is a tremendous thinker. You think about uh, Steve Clifford, great coach, Orlando took care of that uh, second round, Brett Brown, San Antonio tree, Greg Popovich won that 
Uh, third round of Mike Budenholzer, another highly regarded and was the NBA coach of the year uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks. San Antonio tree won that. And then obviously with Steve Kerr, but he's always evolving. He's extremely intelligent. Uh, he doesn't feel as though he has the answers to everything. Uh, he's has a great rapport with the players uh, demands that they compete hard uh, and thinks out of the box. And so, you know, he, to me is at the elite level. And I remember Hubie Brown years ago telling me that, very few can see all 10 players moving at the same time on a basketball court. Uh, most kind of follow the ball, right? And you're only seeing half of it. And I think he sees all of it. I think he sees all 10. Uh, and he's got an extremely high basketball IQ. And it's a lot of fun to see him operate during a game. And, you know, the Raptors demand, uh, you know, demand playing hard, right? And, and let me tell you what, they got the right players and Kyle Lowry and uh, Pascal Siakam and, you know, Fred Van Vliet and the list goes on and on uh, with the players that uh, they have and the expectation level. Uh, and I think that uh, there's a high standard, you know, set by obviously Masai when he came here saying, hey, we will win, we will win. And along with Bobby Webster and originally, you know, Dwayne Casey and now Nick Nurse and, um, it's it's really been special to sit back and watch all of this, Joey, where you just see a franchise become one of the premier franchises in the NBA. When you think about coach, executive, development, players, uh, they're certainly in uh, the top three, uh, in my opinion, if not the number one uh, franchise in the NBA when you put all of that together. And it's a testament to Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, who also are doing a really great thing by turning the Scotiabank Arena into a giant kitchen and cooking meals for for people in need. So it's a testament to that organization overall that they allowed this to happen and have and have done everything to encourage it and and offer all kinds of support financially and from a, a personnel level. And last question before I let you go on, Nurse, yeah. is he coached for a long time in Europe. He won a couple of championships in the British Basketball League. How much of a factor is it that he coached overseas and may have learned some different schemes and different methods? How much of a factor is that in the fact that he was, they weren't able to, they weren't able to, you know, in baseball, they, a guy tips his pitches, right? A, a pitcher tips his pitches. Yeah. And, you, and you know that if you get an opposing team's playbook, how much of a factor was it that he coached in Europe that there was no real book on Nick Nurse? Well, I think that, you know, two things. One is not only uh, coaching abroad uh, in Europe, in uh, England, in Belgium, uh, but also the uh, G League, right? Uh, he won two titles there. And I think what uh, it really uh, enabled him to do, not necessarily a book of, you know, how are you going to, uh, coach with respect to plays and all those things. Although, you know, he's using plays that he's used, uh, that he used in England and, and also in uh, the G League. But I think it has to do, and Nick does talk about this quite often when you, you start going down this road about how important it is to be a head coach 
And he was a head coach for 25 years at various levels before he became an assistant uh, at the NBA level, which helped him extremely. Uh, I mean, it helped him to a high degree because you're sitting there, you're, you're getting an opportunity uh, to put together game plans and, uh, you know, put together an offense. And, you know, as he said, he was a defensive guy before he was an offensive guy. But you look at specifically what those 25 years helped in. It's really the in-game decisions because, as he has mentioned, when you're coaching – at those levels, you don't know who's going to be on your team on a nightly basis, right? Uh, with respect to, you know, the G League, you can have NBA teams plucking players in and out. You're moving things around. And so you're getting ready. Ball goes up in the air. And you actually may have, no matter what you plan, Joey, you, you may have a different group of five or you may have four different players or maybe even just one different player, but that changes everything. And then, so it becomes your in-game adjustments and ability to do that while standing on your feet, I think really separates the good coaches from the great coaches. It's the same thing in hockey, right? You know, the person that's on the bench that can see the line combinations and the different things that need to happen in order to come away with a win. Well, that's something that Nick Nurse is at the next level with. And the reason why was because of what you mentioned is that you're, you know, putting in the time uh, over in Europe, you're putting in the time in the G League. All right, last question. My text poll today was had nothing to do with sports. McCartney said that the Beatles were better than the Stones. Jagger responded and said, that the Stones are still a band that fills stadiums and the Beatles haven't been together since 1970 as it's come back. Beatles or Stones, which one's better? Um, I'm going to go with Stones. Why? Well, I mean, I am amazed by the longevity. You know, that is for sure. Um, but I was never uh, as brilliant as the Beatles are, and as brilliant as uh, all of them, by the way, whether it be, you know, Ringo or Paul or John or, or George, they were brilliant. We all know that. But um, I do not have one of their songs on my iTunes. However, I do have Rolling Stones. So um, that's, just, that's just the way I'm going. All you, right, Matt. Where, where, which way are you going? I'm holding mine till the end of the show. It's called a hook. Oh, is that what you're doing? <laughs> huh? Is that what you're doing? Yes, I am. It's called a hook. Stay tuned till the end of the show. Matt, thanks a lot for doing this. We're going to take the break. Stay safe. And the Thank fact you. that you're in track pants a lot makes me feel really good about the way I've been dressing, pal. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, buddy. All the best and all the best to everyone out there. And thank you to all the all of those that are working uh, on the front lines and also uh, at the essential businesses as well. So thanks to everyone. Matty D, the man who called, in my opinion, the greatest run in Canadian sports history. Yeah, it, the gold medals at the Olympics are nice, but there was something about that Raptor run that just galvanized parts of this country that wouldn't have been galvanized with hockey. We'll take the break, and we'll come back and talk about this NFL draft has been fantastic. And I have to say that I'm so impressed that they should keep it exactly this way. We'll discuss when we return on Sportsnet. 
this Joey Vendetta back on Sportsnet nationally in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and of course, you can listen online on the Radio Player app. We got a text in. Who's better, the Beatles or the Stones? Because Jagger and McCartney kind of went at it. They kind of went at it because McCartney started it. And Tam in Cambridge chimes in. Good afternoon, Joey. In my opinion, you can't choose one of those bands over the other. Both have their place in shaping music history. Would some of my favorite sounds and bands even have come to pass without those earlier influences? Imagine was a beautiful song. That's a John Lennon song, by the way. Not a Beatles song. Now, without the Beatles, there would have been John Lennon, perhaps. Or perhaps there would have been. Paint It Black is a great song as well. It's actually one of my dad's favorite songs. Because if you listen to Paint It Black by the Stones, it actually sounds like a it sounds like a traditional song from whatever country you may be from. It's got a little bit of an ethnicity to it. It's got an Indian sound to it. It's got a little bit of an Italian sound, European sound, a little Greek thing going on. But it's one of those classic Rolling Stones songs that they took influences from so many places. And that's the question today on the text line, just because McCartney and Jagger kind of went at it. The Stones were great last week on that show where all the artists played from home. The Stones were the best, without question. Aaron and Calgary, no question the Stones are the better band. One of my most popular, unpopular, sorry, unpopular opinions that the Beatles are simply the single most overrated band of all time. I wouldn't go that far, but I understand why you like the Stones. Hey, they've still, they've been around. They just put on a new song, first new song in, in eight years. Came out yesterday, I believe. A little bit of a quarantine theme. And before we take the break, Andrew, Beatles, hands down. The Stones haven't put out any hits in decades. They still perform, yes, but they're living off their hits from the 60s and 70s. Beatles owned the Stones when they were both at the top of their games. Stones still sell out stadiums because of that material, not new material. So them performing ultimately doesn't mean too much in this argument. It's an interesting and a well-thought-out argument. It's a great thing about listeners. There's some excellent takes, excellent thoughts. Keep them coming. 590-590. We'll take the break. And still to come in the next hour, Alan Walsh. What's the future of the National Hockey League? We'll find out. And up next, one of the most opinionated players in sports history will join us when we return on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It is Vendetta back on Sportsnet. Nationally, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto. Internationally, online, on the World Wide Web the radio player app. You can also download the podcast, the Joey Vendetta Show podcast, which this week will feature Ty Domi, along with our next guest, amongst others. But we were talking about crazy stuff going on in the world. This has got to be true, because if TMZ is reporting it, then it's true. They're reporting that Kim Jong-un is reportedly dead after botched heart surgery. Kim Jong-un is reportedly dead, or he's on his deathbed with no hope for recuperation. Let me tell you something about news. I don't necessarily believe the news. And I'm not a guy that's a tabloid person by any stretch of the imagination. But TMZ's batting a thousand. 
they break everything. Whether it's Ray Rice or any of the sports stuff, they break first because they pay. They pay people for information. People are on the TMZ take. So there's someone feeding them this information. So if I'm taking action on this, this is two to one that it's true. That Kim Jong-un is either dead or he's on his deathbed and he's not going to recuperate from some botched heart surgery, which is crazy. If you're the leader of a country, you got to figure you got to get good doctors, unless, of course, he had some kind of condition that was irreparable. But, man, 2020 has been a crazy year. Just add this if it is indeed true. We're going to talk to Alan Walsh, hockey agent, talk about escrow, the return of the season, and what that's going to look like. And we're going to be joined in a moment here with and by, we're going to be joined with opinion. And that's why we're going to have this guy on. He's one of the most opinionated people I know, and he's not shy about it, and he's unapologetic. You can ask him if he watched the NFL draft. As I said earlier, the NFL draft was fantastic. It was fantastic because it was live sports. And it wasn't a game. But you got to see the differences in organizations, their personalities. And their personalities were borne out through where they were executing from, where they were conducting their draft from. Bill Belichick looked like he was in a northeastern U.S. hideaway trying to stay away from the authorities. Cliff Kingsbury and Sean McVay were duking it out for best manicured backyard with indoor-outdoor living space. And, of course, Jerry Jones was mofo on everybody on his $250 million yacht. It is my pleasure now to welcome back an old friend and someone that we just got a tweet at Radio Vendetta where the guy says, was going to go get some sun for the first time in a week, but a Sean Avery segment is worth staying in for. I am Sean Avery joins us. Sean, thanks for doing this. How are you, man? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm doing pretty well. Where are you? Where are you holding up? Where are you hunkering down? Uh, I'm in uh, I'm in New York City. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm in New so, York. So tell us, I know you live in New York. Tell us what it's been like. I know you're a New York guy. You're very proud of living there. But what, what's it been like since this has all transpired? Uh you know, it hasn't really, I mean, I, I live in the West Village with my wife. Uh, we actually are somewhat lucky because we have an old uh, carriage house, which means it's, it's basically like a, it's like a mini version of a house that's in, in, uh, in, a, in a nice part of New York. So, you know, the, the, the problem would be if you lived in a building you know, let's say there's a building with 70 apartments. That's going to be a tough situation because you're up and down the elevator and like, you know, you're just running into people. And uh, so that would suck. So we kind of, we kind of got lucky, but yeah, I mean, listen, it's, uh, it's a little bit weird. The thing that's weird now is like people, people are crazy, man. They, they, you know, no one will walk by each other, which I just don't understand. Like, everything that I've read said you're not going to get coronavirus from walking by somebody. And, uh, yeah, it's been like 
it's very interesting to just see like this big social experiment that we're going through. But other than that, everything's been good. Yeah. We've just kind of been hanging out at home, like trying to, it's funny. We've been actually very uh, inspired and doing like a lot of different things content wise. So I, I, I love it. I, I actually somewhat don't want this thing to end. <laughs> and I understand why you're saying that because for some people they've taken it as a some people look at it as a, as a negative but some people find opportunity in situations like this and you have a podcast which is no F's given that's F-U-C-K no F's given and so the, the podcast when did you start doing the podcast Sean how long ago uh, I think we're on episode uh, this past weekend was episode 17 so we've had it for you know, a little over three months. Um, I say we because uh, <clears throat> Kevin Connolly from uh, Entourage, he's, he's E on, on Entourage, he, uh, he started basically a, um, he started this, his own little kind of boutique podcast network. Uh, he's got a, he's got five or six shows on there, maybe a little bit more, um, got a guy by the name of Ethan Supley, who, who's a, a famous actor that a lot of people would know. Uh, he's got a show, Bob Emery, Ripper Magoo. Bob Emery's the guy that does those voiceovers over uh, sports clips. Um, so I started it. Uh, I was probably the third show that Kevin launched. And, uh, you know, it's nice. I'd always kind of been hemming and Han about making the decision to jump in that because... Uh, you know, everybody's got a podcast these days. The thing that's unique about me is that I do it by myself. I don't have any guests. Um, I don't have a co-host or anything. So it's somewhat unique in that sense. I occasionally take phone calls. Um, I did my first interview last uh, episode 16. I interviewed Paul Bissonette from Spit and Chicklets. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's it's definitely not easy. Like, you know, hosting a, an hour show once a week by yourself in the, in my basement in my, of my home. It can get a little tricky sometimes. Um, but I, I've never been one that's been at a loss for words. So I, I somehow try and figure out how to put a storyline together. And then I, at the end, I, 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 I'm done. And I think I have no idea if I just got a show that had any cohesive, like train of thought, but, Let's see what happens. And, and and 17 weeks in a row, I think I've I've just been lucky. So it's been fun. Yeah, I've, I've listened to a few of them, and, and it sounds like it's kind of a stream of consciousness, and you find a topic, and then you just kind of go, which has always been your forte. You've never been never been shy about expressing your opinion. You're an author. You've written, you know, you've been you've written a. I don't know if it was a bestseller like Ty Domi's. I had Ty on earlier on. We know that Ty's was a bestseller. I imagine you sold a lot of copies, and I'm I'm very proud to say that I was mentioned in it. So. It's 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 one of the things that I tell people. Yeah, yeah. No, it was definitely it was a national bestseller. I, I it definitely outsold Ty. I love Ty, but <laughs> I definitely outsold Ty. Yeah, I'm make sure that I tell him. <laughs> so, yeah. Sean, one of the one of the podcasts, one of the podcasts, you talk about cameo, and cameo is a platform where people can pay yeah, people yeah. to send greetings. So tell me about the, talk about the podcast, the episode, the ca- I thought it was hilarious. The cameo, how did you get into cameo? You seem like you were dipping your toe in kind of like you were talking about. And then you're like, oh, okay, screw it. I'm going to do this. Yeah. No, like six months ago, somebody introduced me to it. And I thought to myself, ah, you know, this feels a little weird right now. 
there was just something that felt I, I was never a guy like I didn't love doing the autograph signings where you go into a mall and sit behind a table and somebody would pay like a hundred bucks and they'd come and you'd sign a piece of paper and take a picture and then they would leave. So I just thought it was a little weird. So the first time cameo came uh, across my lap, I kind of brushed it off. And then I would say three weeks ago, it was 1030 at night and something just popped in my head. I, I said, Oh my God, I should just sign up and see what happens. So I signed up and I didn't even sign up properly. Like I didn't put a greeting video and, and I didn't really follow the steps. I went to bed. I woke up in the morning and I had like eight of these things. So I said, okay, let's, let's give it a go. And basically in a week it turned into a whole new animal. Like it's a full-time job and all I do is roast people. So I've done four, 400, 450 of them. And it's unbelievable because I find it as practice. Like people give you a script and they give you information that you can go after somebody like, you know, Joey says, you know what, go after uh, our buddy, Mark Dedia. It's his 50th birthday party, but I want you to, to roast him. And here's all these things that he quirks that he has about him. So I just get this script and I get to unleash and they're like three minutes long. Usually I would say that I'm the best cameo cameoer on the cameo platform. Absolutely. Like it's so much fun. It's so much fun. And it's actually very different from like the traditional autograph situation because this is a video that somebody's going to have for life. You know, it's high quality. It gets sent directly to them. There's so much interesting interaction with this thing. Um, yeah, it's just fantastic. I'll tell you like, but there's some celebrities that are real jerks on there and they take, take it for granted. First of all, they charge $500. They do a 30 second cameo. Like Mike Tyson's the worst cameo or I've ever seen. He can hardly spit out a sentence and he's charging 500 bucks a clip. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting platform. I think it's the future. I love doing them. I'm swamped in them. Like I'm trying to keep up, but it's so much fun. And I also set my price at, at a very reasonable rate. Like it's not, you know, I would never have the uh, chutzpah to charge $500 to send somebody a two minute video. You know, you do you're you're, you're 60 bucks, right? Something like that. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a pretty good rate, man. 60 bucks. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a video that somebody's going to have for the for forever. It's like uh, I remember 20 years ago, we would do these autograph sessions and, you know, you'd walk in with no money in your pocket and you walk in with thousands of dollars out of your pocket. And the, and the guys, the brokers were charging these people 150 bucks for an autograph. Like, that's a signature on a piece of paper. These videos are totally personalized. They're so much fun and people love them. Like, people love them. So, yeah, I, I think it's a very – I think it's great. I love Cameo. Well, you know what is interesting is that it, it speaks to your personality because you've always been a guy, even though you – you know, when you in your book, Ice Capades, there's all kinds of stories in there about the your off-ice escapades and everything, but you've always been a guy who – and I've seen this, right? You, you could have an attitude with a person that is, quote-unquote, someone who thinks they're special or has power – but then when a regular person comes up to you and approaches you, as long as they're relatively normal and polite, 
you'll engage in a conversation with him. So I think the Cameo platform is kind of almost tailor-made for a guy like you. Yeah, it's so much fun. And it's also great practice. Um, you know, like you got to be light on your feet and you got to think and you got to be quick and your story, you're telling a story. You have to try and connect with these people and make sure it's worth their while and make sure everybody enjoys it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's funny how time changes. It's like timing and lighting. Like six months ago, I thought it was a little bit weird and uncomfortable. Now, now I just can't get, I mean, now it's literally actually part of like my daily routine. Like I have to, I have a couple hours a day where I have to do cameos. Otherwise I, I, you know, I'll let somebody down because it's their birthday and they booked it. It's, it's pretty wild. So let's talk a little bit about, about hockey before, before we let you go. We got about another 10, we can go longer with you because it's, it's actually interesting. So you, you've written the books and, and the, the book, the, the ice capades book had some great quotes in there in terms of some of the highlights and some of the things that you, that you did. And one of the quotes was talking about, you gave a healthy, firm and flirtatious slap to Paris's ass. And you were blowing yeah. people away, especially the gay guys. Talk about the Los Angeles experience versus the New York experience and some of the things that happened during those times in the two different cities. Cause you lived in both of them and you, while you were there, you had fun in both of them. Yeah. I mean like, so LA was the first stop in uh, on a real city. I mean, I was in Detroit for a cup of coffee, but LA was the first time I saw like the big lights, you know? And I think right off the bat, when I got there, I said, I'm not going to live in Laurel or in uh, Manhattan Beach where all the players live. I was a big Neil Young fan. And I said, I'm going to live in Laurel Canyon, which is this little canyon kind of below Mulholland, separates the valley to Hollywood. And that was right off the bat where I moved, which was very, very unusual. I don't think anyone had ever probably still to this day, like Luke Robitaille lived in, uh, in Brentwood which was considered a little bit off the charts. So, yeah, that's where it kind of started. And then from there, I just kind of, you know, that's where I started meeting my friends that became my friends over the course of my time there. Guys like yourself, a lot of people in the music industry, a lot of different people that I would have never met if I was living in Manhattan Beach with all the hockey players. So, you know, and then that's just kind of where the snowball started to roll where, you know, I had a lot of some girlfriends that were pretty high pro high profile females in, in the, in the, in Hollywood. And, and uh, yeah, man, we had some fun. I was totally segregated. Like I was, I was, I had two lives. I had a hockey life and then I had my normal life and my normal life was so far away from the hockey life that nobody really could put them together, which was interesting. And I think at that point also, like, it had been a long time since there had been any hockey players that had any profile in L.A. since the Gretzky days. You know, there was a 10-year gap there. So, yeah, man, we had some fun. We had some fun. And, uh, yeah, that Paris story, I, I, she, you know, she's like one of the guys in a lot of sense. People don't understand her. her she's got a dual personality. She's got, like, an on-screen personality and then a real-life personality. And, yeah, that was a fun, that was a pretty wild night. I ended up, basically, that was where I met, uh, well, 
Yeah, my my future girlfriend Alicia Cuthbert, uh, her fiance at the time came in to protect me, and he ended up breaking my hand, and we ended up in the emergency room. It was like a just a, yeah, that was a real that was a banger of a night. <laughs> and and then you so you end up playing in New York, you, you end up playing for the Rangers, and you become a New York guy, you become beloved in the city, and you settle there. That's where you live now. Tell us about the New York experience. Yeah, I mean that was like. You know, that was kind of the perfect segue because I think coming to this city, I was sort of tailor-made for the team and for the city, the blue-collar city, the fans, New York Ranger fans are all sort of, you know, a Ranger fan when you see one. It's a rough-and-tumble city, certainly for their sports, and they love guys that play hard. So, you know, and then I came into an environment where Glenn Sather was our GM, I had a great coach, Tom Rennie, who really one of the best NHL coaches I had, just a, just a player's coach. He loved his players. And then I came into a situation with an old teammate, Brendan Shanahan, who, who kind of took me under his wing again um, after our Detroit days and playing with a guy like Yager, which I think, you know, that was really one of his, towards the end of his career, but some still big, big years he had early on with Henrik Lundqvist and that. Yeah, we had some fun. It was kind of just like, here we go again. And the big difference was I just got less sleep in, in New York because everything's open, always. Nothing closes. So my my sleep pattern took a little bit of a hit because in L.A., you know, like the, the nightclubs and the bars, they close at 1 o'clock in New York. They just start get going at 1. So that was a fun ride. But... Yeah, it was kind of I was kind of t- tailor made to play for the Rangers. I think it was the perfect place for me to kind of come and and also they let me just go, you know, right from the top, from Jim Dolan, our owner, to to Slats, to to Tom, to Yogs and Shanny. It was kind of like that was the environment that that was perfect for me. Yeah, they seem to embrace your personality and they let you be you. And I I wanted to ask you before we let you go here and and i just found on on cameo by the way you only charge 60 bucks and i can't find kevin Connolly, but kevin dillon who was on entourage he charges 300 bucks for a greeting abes yeah and and so what i'll say to that is at least he goes into character like he puts the hat on and he becomes johnny drama so to a certain extent i respect that but it's also just a crazy, crazy amount. I mean, it's too much. It's like a hundred dollars a minute. It's like it's 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 aggressive. I mean, I I just yeah. But but you know, he puts the hat on and he becomes drama. And it's like somebody's gonna have a video of Johnny Drama, like giving them shit for the rest of their life. So yeah. But Tyson is unbelievable. Tyson, he he does twenty second videos, and I think he charges. 500 and he can't even get a sentence out like he's reading off a teleprompter in the corner it's unbelievable that people are paying for that you know you know who we got to get to do this is we got to get ty domi would be a natural don't you think no he'd be perfect for it he'd be perfect for it but yeah ty would you know ty's like mr good guy he'd probably feel weird about getting paid to do it i'm the complete opposite it's like yeah right i'm you, you know you gotta get paid for your time the world we yeah, live in yeah 60 bucks is pretty cheap man before before i let you go one final question something that we talked about a long time ago and 
and I only bring it up because we live in a world where people now have been faced with different choices in this reality where they're questioning a lot of different things, including what they may or may not be doing for a living in the future. Was there, was there ever a point in your career where you questioned playing hockey where you didn't feel like, what am I doing here in this situation? No, I think, I think it was, you know, when I stopped playing, it was because I knew that that was, I was done. And like, there was some other thing that was going to happen. I had a medium read for me, this famous medium, this woman named uh, Laura Lynn. She's from New Jersey. She does these, she's kind of like blown up now. And it was the first time I'd ever had anything like that. And she said, you know, I see your future. There's all these cameras and lights. And like, I wrote all the notes down. This was 10 years ago. It was two years before I stopped playing. And I don't know. I've always just kind of gone with my gut. And when I feel something, I feel it. And I just make the move. And I, and I don't linger on it. And, yeah, I mean, it's worked out. You know, I couldn't be happier from making that decision. I, I would – you got to make a transition when you're young. You can't make a transition when you're older. And, like, the difference between 38 and, and, and 32 – it's a big difference, especially five more years of playing and toll it takes on your body. It's not an easy game. So yeah, I'm pretty happy with, with how everything worked out, but I stopped playing when I, when I, when I was good. Yeah. I played 12 years. I been playing since I was two years old. I was ready to call it. And you know what? You've done okay for yourself for, for, especially for a young man from Pickering, you've done all right for yourself and we appreciate yeah. your time, Sean. Thanks, Joey. We'll talk to you soon. That's Sean Avery. Always good to talk to him, man. A guy who doesn't pull any punches and has great stories and has written some entertaining some entertaining prose. We're going to take the break, and we're going to come back with someone else who is fairly entertaining. And will tell us what he thinks about the future of the National Hockey League when we return on the Sportsnet Radio Network. We're back on the Sportsnet Radio Network. My name is Joey Vendetta. Every Saturday for three hours, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, and 10 a.m. in Calgary, we put on this show called The Joey Vendetta Show, which touches on all kinds of things, including on who's the greatest, the Beatles or the Stones, McCartney and Jagger got into a little war of words. Well, as much as they can get into at their age. I mean, God bless them both. Both incredible, incredible legends, musically speaking. But McCartney said the Beatles were better. Now, Mick seemed to disagree because he's still playing stadiums. And we have a bunch of texts on the text line at 590-590. And the texts were great. I'm going to read a bunch of them. Tom from Barry says he loves Sean Avery because he was not a nice, not a nice like every other boring hockey player. Silly question. Both bands are so different. Jason in Lethbridge says Stones without a doubt. We're joined now by a dear friend of myself and the program, Alan Walsh, who is a guy that I liken to a pit bull when it comes to representing his clients at Walsh A, at Walsha on Twitter if you want to follow him, 
Alan, thanks a lot for being on the program. How are you? I'm doing great, Joey. How are you, pal? I'm okay. And Alan, of course, runs Octagon Hockey. And if you know anything about Alan, he is nothing but a defender of the rights of players and especially his clients. Alan, before we get to this, I want to talk to you about what you've been going through in the last several weeks along with the rest of us and what we've been dealing with in terms of the environment that has been created by something that we had no control over. How have you been coping with it? How has your family been dealing with it? Where have you been? What have you been doing to stay sane? Can you share that with us? Sure. I'm, I'm here in L.A. Uh, with my family. My kids are doing virtual school, um, spending a lot of time at home on the phone with clients. We don't go out other than a family walk once a day. We watch a family movie at night. Uh, we order all our food using Amazon Fresh or Instacart. Uh, so we've been taking the quarantine very seriously. My wife has um, a severe case of asthma. Uh, I've had high blood pressure for uh, 30 years, uh, perhaps related to my, uh, uh, my job. I don't know. But uh, we, we are uh, at home. We're safe. We're healthy. But we're certainly taking every precaution that we can. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading and catching up on my reading. Uh, I've got about uh, 12 books on my uh, night table that have been uh, gathering dust over over time. And I'm finally making a dent in them. Uh, just finished reading Lords of the Realm, uh, a great book on the history of baseball. Uh, read The Instigator recently. Uh, great book by uh, Jonathan uh, Gatehouse uh, that I had read a while ago but wanted to read again uh, and catch up on that. And also read the uh, autobiography of uh, Mar Marvin Miller, a very different uh, ball game, which uh, is a fascinating read for anybody interested in the uh, business side of the sports industry and the founding of the Major League Baseball Players Association. So, Alan, you've been an agent for a long time, and we'll get into what's going on in hockey, but before becoming an agent, you're a lawyer by trade, and when you were a kid growing up in Montreal, you played goalie, you idolized Ken Dryden, and you started playing when you were five, I believe, and you were, you were a pretty good goalie in your community, but you ended up going to McGill University in Montreal for undergrad, and then to Southwestern Law School in L.A., and after your, your second year of law school, you get an internship at the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, and that becomes a full-time job. Talk about your career before becoming a hockey agent and some of the highlights. It had to be pretty interesting working for the DA's office in L.A. during that era. Well, picture this. I was approximately 24 years old, and I just graduated from law school, passed the bar, become an attorney, I'm hired by the L.A. County District Attorney's Office to be a prosecutor, and I'm in a mainline felony trial unit, and uh, within 10 days of being sworn in as an attorney, I was trying a felony jury trial of a gang member who had stolen a car, and as he was being chased by police after ditching the car, 
uh, pulled out a gun and fired at the police officers as he was running away. Uh, thank God didn't hit anybody. That was my first case. Uh, within uh, nine months of, of becoming a DA, uh, I, was, uh, uh, I was allowed to join. I applied and I was allowed to join the hardcore gang division of the DA's office where all we did in, the, in this unit was gang-involved homicides. This is 1991-92. Uh, uh, gang murders are at an all-time high in L.A. Uh, and at the time, the district attorney of Los Angeles and the county board of supervisors were at war with each other. Uh, and the county board of supervisors dramatically cut the DA's budget. So the LADA's office is the lar largest prosecutorial agency in the world. There's over a thousand prosecutors countywide, and uh, with a uh, budget dramatic budget reduction, uh, we lost about 250 to 300 DAs through attrition and a hiring freeze. So there was literally uh, murder cases backed up, waiting to be tried. And I was trying a murder case uh, at the downtown criminal courts building, Broadway and Temple. Uh, and, and after finishing a closing argument, the jury is deliberating. I'm actually in the courtroom next door uh, doing jury selection on another murder case with the jury deliberating, asking questions, having to go back between courtrooms, going back for a verdict. Uh, right in the middle of cases. It was literally one murder case after another. And in a five-year period, I tried 40 murder cases, which is a career. And to put that into perspective, the Manhattan DA's office uh, has a requirement that you be a, a mainline prosecutor for 10 years before you can even do a murder case. And I did a murder case after eight months. Well, it prepared you for becoming a, a hockey agent. And before that, one of the, I guess, the high-profile cases you worked on, you became a, you had, you had an office down the hall from Marsha Clark, the lead prosecutor of the O.J. Simpson murder trial. What was that like? Um, there were three uh, prosecutors uh, running the O.J. case. It was Marsha and Bill Hodgman and Christopher Darden. And Bill Hodgman was my mentor in the DA's office and, my, and became a lifelong uh, best friend of mine. And uh, uh, it was amazing being five doors down from Marsha and Bill uh, during the OJ case from beginning to end. Uh, I was exposed to a lot of what was going on uh, uh, on the DA side. Day-to-day, uh, -day, it was a case, as you well remember, that um, captured the world, uh, the world's attention. Uh, Camp OJ was across the street from, from our offices. Uh, it was a media center with tents taking up the entire block across the street. Uh, it, was, it was truly a crazy time. Uh, never seen anything like that before, probably never will again. Uh, but it was uh, something that uh, when I write my book one day, there might be a chapter on, on those days. 
Uh, I, I imagine there will be. And, and Alan, look, you have a lot to a lot of insight. You always share that insight and, and you don't pull any punches. You're a guy that believes in justice. And I imagine that being a Canadian living in America right now and, and the lack of justice on so many levels has to be trying for you. And I want to get your perspective before we talk hockey really quickly on that. What's it like being a guy who you lived in L.A. a long time, but you're a Canadian and you have Canadian sensibilities and and we know how you feel about justice overall. What's it like living in the United States right now and seeing how things are being dealt with? Uh, it, it, it's funny, you know, you, you're correct. I was born and raised in Montreal and lived there for uh, approximately 19, 20 years before uh, I came out to L.A. to go to law school. Um, I, I never really lost my Canadian identity. Uh, but over the years, uh, I've acquired an American identity. And, and truly, I, I'm, I'm a dual citizen and I really do feel a special affinity for both countries. And I think right now, uh, uh, politically, what's going on in the United States, the, the lack of bipartisanship and the hyper-partisanship on both sides of the political divide is extremely destructive uh, to the country. Uh, it's sad to see. I really don't see... Uh, uh, an end to the polarization of society that has taken place over time. Uh, I, I like to consider myself fairly well-read. Uh, every day I read through four or five newspapers, and it's incredible when you watch Fox News versus, versus watching CNN, how different uh, the news is being portrayed uh, and a, a, a sense of tribalism exists is going on for, for quite a while, but I think it's really the last three, four years has gotten to a level uh, that's not good for society. It's not good for America. And until we find ways uh, for everyone to speak uh, together and find commonality uh, of interest, I, I, I mean, we're facing a global pandemic right now where uh, uh, the way of life of, of all of us has been uh, severely curtailed. Uh, and, and there's 50,000-plus American dead, 200,000 dead around the world. If that can't bring us together, I don't know what will. It's well said. The National Hockey League is something that brings people together. Sports brings people together. We know that the NFL draft on Thursday was the highest rated NFL draft of all time for obvious reasons. And it was entertaining because it showed a human side to these executives, people who make a lot of money, have a lot of power in the sports world, and they are in the same situ situation as many of us are. They're wearing track pants, they're in their basement, and that's where they're doing their work from. The National Hockey League, there's a report that the National Hockey League has had discussions with players and told them that May 15th may be a date they would be reporting and as many as four NHL arenas would host three games each per day without fans in one of the scenarios that the league is considering to finish the season. What do you know? What light can you shed on this for us and what the NHL may look like if it indeed comes back this season? What I, what I can say is this. Uh, it, it's my belief that uh, the NHL has 
several uh, uh, different plans that they've been kicking around for a while, debating internally. I think the plan that they've determined to be the most viable is the uh, four-city plan where they put players uh, from different teams into one of these four cities and then place them in a, in a bubble, so to speak, where you try to severely limit any outside contact with the, with the players and the staff uh, with anyone else from outside of the bubble. And you'd have to bring in uh, specialized sanitation crews who would uh, sanitize dressing rooms, hotels, common eating areas, um, uh, buses, and so forth. Um, there are some cities where there's uh, hotels across the street from the arena which would limit the need to use a bus at all. And that would be a strong consideration. Everything is going to be in this plan is going to be based on uh, keeping the players separate, uh, keeping everything around them sanitized and, and hope that they can come back and play without uh, worst case scenario having any positive tests. But the most important thing to keep in mind in all of this, the league is only one side of this. And whatever the league comes up with, whatever the plan is, the ultimate plan, it's not a matter of Gary Bettman and the league saying, okay, we have decided this is what we're going to do. No, the players, of of course, have to agree to it. Right. Exactly. And there are a lot of people that are forgetting, conveniently forgetting that step. So whatever the plan is, it's going to have to be presented to the NHLPA. And we're fortunate to have the great leadership of uh, Don Fear and his staff, who I think have been doing an amazing job during this uh, uh, pause in keeping the players informed Uh, The word that I'm hearing is the level of communication and cooperation up to now with the league between the league and the NHLPA has been unprecedented, which is good to see both sides being able to communicate and get along with each other during this time. And at, at the end of the day, Don is going to have to present to the players what the plan is. And the players are going to have to say, okay, or not. And if there are revisions to the plan or things that the players want to be able to make it work, I'm sure that's going to be communicated back to the other side. Our guest is Alan Walsh, who runs Octagon Hockey and represents a ton of players, both in the National Hockey League and abroad. Okay, so you bring up this this part about the players, which is conveniently not being... Let's put let's put it this way. It's, it's conveniently not being put front and center. We know the players have to agree and will have to approve any change in how this league looks like when and if it comes back, and we're hoping that it does. There's something else that I want to get your opinion on, and I'm sure you're going to have an opinion on this. Is I talked to Brian Burke earlier in the week last week, and he brought up something that I hadn't even really thought of. If the if the season is indeed canceled, and we're hoping that it's not, but if it in, indeed is canceled or it's played without fans and the revenue is impacted because the NHL is still a gate driven league. You and I have discussed the TV rights 
issue and how much money that would have fetched had they hung on as opposed to sold it all for for you know the peanut pennies on the dollar at the time and we don't know how that's going to be impacted going forward and what new rights fees are going to look like in the in the post pandemic world whether they're going to be even more valuable or less valuable but what's the salary cap going to look like and what's escrow going to look like depending on how this unfolds from a financial standpoint you know, at the end of the day, Joey, it's, a, it's an amazing question. It's a, a question that is timely, but there's no answer to that question because there's going to have to be a negotiation between the NHL and the NHLPA on a uh, upper limit uh, for next season. Uh, one thing I can, I can tell you and I can share with you my opinion and my thoughts right now any plan that the NHL has been debating internally is with no fans this summer. If we're playing games in June, July, August, September, and by that I mean completing the regular season of the, of the 1920 season and going into playoffs and having playoffs, there is no plan on the table where we're going to be able to allow fans into the building Uh, So it's going to be primarily a quote-unquote made-for-TV event. And here are some quick uh, revenue numbers. Um, The NHL HRR hockey-related revenue was projected to be approximately $5 billion this year. Where we're at now, at the time the season was paused, was $3.9 billion. So there's a billion-one loss right now. If we come back and can complete the regular season and play playoffs, there's approximately $450 million of HRR to be gained through uh, TV and, and sponsorship in completing the season. This is totally without any fans taking into consideration vis-a-vis gate-driven revenue. So the players at the end of the year, whenever that is, as a whole – will be owing back to the league anywhere from $350 million to $550 million. Those are the goalposts on what we're talking about. Now, you may have seen uh, the NHL players, the NHLPA, have asked the league to withhold for now from issuing the last paycheck, payroll check of the season, which was due April 15th. Yeah. Players are paid from the first day of the regular season to the last day of the regular season. Uh, first paycheck is October 15. Last paycheck is April 15. Players receive all of their compensation between those two dates. So the last paycheck represents, after escrow, approximately $125 million. And, uh, and between those numbers and between the league and the NHLPA, there's going to have to be some kind of a formula for the players as a whole to pay back the 350 to 550 million. The, yeah, a- the formula that makes the most sense would be spreading that amount out over four or five years, which would then not have a dramatic impact on upper limit and escrow for next season. But, and it is an important, but as it stands now, The CBA actually has language that accounts for what can happen in a uh, shortfall 
of of revenue uh, and the league paying out more money to the players than the revenues justify. And that is the money is to be paid back all from the next season. So if that were actually applied to next year, by my back-of-the-envelope calculations, we would have a $66 million upper limit and a 20 25% escrow. That's wow. not workable. This, it's not workable no, for the players. No. It's not workable for teams. Uh, GMs uh, are horrified by that prospect. Literally every team in the NHL would have to break apart and, and be – either compliance buying buying out some of their best players or uh, looking to trade them and, and move players around, which makes absolutely no sense at all. So the solution is... No, you know is, what, Alan? Yeah, what is it? We got a break here, but real quick. The solution is spreading it out over four or five years, the amount that will be paid back, and and keeping the upper limit at least where it is now at 81.5. And having some sort of limits on escrow going forward into next year. It's going to be crazy to see what happens, Alan. There are a lot of people doing some calculation on the back of the envelopes on how they're going to pay their mortgage. So I'll be interested to see how this unfolds. I appreciate it as always. Thank you very much. And take care of yourself and your family. And I hope to see you soon, Alan. Thanks, Joey. God bless you and and all the best. And always a pleasure being with you. Alan Walsh telling us how it is and how it may unfold when the National Hockey League hopefully returns. We'll take the break and wrap up the show next on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Time to wrap up the program. Thank you very much to our fabulous production team. Andrew Holland operating the technical equipment, making sure that the Internet still works. Who knows, he may have a future with the NFL, the way they've operated the NFL draft as well, Mark Boffo, putting all these ideas in my head that you hear. And our thanks to our guests today, a litany, a who's who of who. It's like Horton hears a who. You remember that, Dr. Seuss? Probably not, because you're probably young enough to say, who's Dr. Seuss? Alan Walsh, you just heard him talking about the NHL and the potential future of hockey and how the salaries are going to shake out. And look, if you're sitting there figuring out how you're going to pay your rent, pay your utility bill, and applying for government assistance. I don't think you really care about millionaire hockey players. And you know what? I don't blame you. I think there's going to be a reset across the board. I think salaries are going to get cut huge, just like everybody else's. Hopefully we're not. Hopefully nobody gets their salaries cut. But the economic realities of what we're going through are what they are. Sean Avery was on as well. Always a fine guest. Always opinionated. An excellent reaction. Julie Stewart Binks, broadcaster. And you can find her online at JS underscore JS Binks underscore TV. No, JSB underscore TV. Excuse me. I stand corrected. At JSB underscore TV. She has all kinds of content going on if you're bored right now, which you may be. Matt Devlin as well. Raptors play by play. Man and wearer of sartorially resplendent sweatpants, unlike mine. I should probably wash them at some point. And more importantly, thanks to you for listening and being part of the program in Vancouver and Calgary and Toronto and wherever else you may be. 
And of course, don't forget to download the podcast, The Joey Vendetta Show. Tell your friends, rate it, subscribe, and of course, maybe be part of it the next time we're on. Thanks a lot for listening, and we will catch you again next week.